Welcome once again to Cinemaholics, where we talk about the biggest and best films coming to theaters and streaming online from the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm John Negroni, film editor for the young folks from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's the pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and he hates sand. It gets everywhere. It's Will Ashton. Wow. I, I couldn't think of a Dune quote, so I just was mm. thinking of the Hans Zimmer, like... Yeah, you just wanted to be Hans. Yeah, just the wan sound that, that comes out every every few minutes in the movie, which mm-hmm. I like a lot, but we'll discuss that in a bit. Yeah, we're talking about Dune today, and uh, what what else are we talking about, Will Ashton? What are the other two flicks? Um, yeah, we're talking about French Dispatch, the new Wes Anderson film, his 10th film, and we're going to be discussing, uh, what is it, Ron Gone Wrong. Yeah, that's the one. I yeah, can't, a new animated film. Yeah, it's, it's not a memorable title, but um, yeah. that has uh, nothing to say about the, my opinion about the rest of the film. Okay, okay, fair enough. Hey, yeah, we're going to talk about all three of these movies. The big one is Dune, and there's so much to get into with mm-hmm. Dune. It's a big movie, and it's a it's a big deal. This this past this month, so many movies, so many big movies. This We were talking off the air, like, oh my gosh, there's so many movies coming out. How are we going to fit yes. them all into Cinemaholics? Well, you can help us out. Because, well, first of all, you can find more episodes, the reviews we've already done on cinemaholics.com, everything, full archive, including written reviews and other bonus content, including, you know, video reviews. Well, did you know we do video reviews on cinemaholics.com now? Did you know that? Yeah, you've been doing that recently. That's fine. Yeah, without, without talking to you about it? Yeah. I just started doing it. Yeah. 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 So I started doing that. <laughs> uh, basically, uh, no, I want. I knew. I knew I wanted to re-kickstart my YouTube channel, and I've been publishing them on Cinemaholics, and they're fun. If you want, if you want earlier reviews than usual, like if you're like, okay, I can't wait to hear what you know John has to say. It's just John. Will Will isn't on the YouTube channel yet. Yeah. But if you want to hear what I have to say about like Eternals, for example, the review for that just went live last night. Mm-hmm. It's there, so you can check it out if you want. But yeah. you know, it's up to you. Mm-hmm. You can also write into the show, send us an email, cinemahawkspodcast at gmail.com is how you do that. If you'd like to support our show, which is what I was getting to earlier, uh, there is our Patreon, patreon.com slash cinemaholics, and you could also leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. That'd be super cool, super nice. And then, yeah, check out the Cinemaholics merch as well. The classic logo is on a hoodie, a mug, a t-shirt, shot glass, whatever you can think of. And of course, if you're like, well, how do I find this stuff? It's in the show notes. Just scroll down, you know, mm-hmm. tap your finger and you're there. But this week, we I feel like there's so much to discuss in terms of new movies that we don't have time for off topics. We got we to gotta get guess. right into it. I, I mean, mean if, if we did, we would probably talk about the Alec Baldwin thing. Yeah, that's a big thing. I'm, if Maybe if we have more time, we can discuss that uh, later date. But yeah, that's just a, I mean, there's a big really- topic. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to say, but safety. Yeah, yeah. it's not really like a fun discussion. It's just really, really sad. Um, but I mean, there was also uh, 
broadcast signal intrusion, which I watched ahead of the show before I was told by you that I didn't need to do that. So did, did, did I tell you though that we were going to talk about it? I well, mean, we talked me. about it. Like, oh, that might come out. Yeah. Well, you're saying, like, great. I'll watch it. And I'll be like, what? And you're like, I just watched it, John. What? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you. I was saying like, should I? What are we covering? And I was like, should we be covering these four films? And then you're like, yeah, we should probably cover all four. And then I watched the fourth one. Did I say all four? Sorry. Yeah, you said all four that. films. Uh, so. I don't know. I mean, I didn't have a lot to say about it. Uh, I thought it was okay. Um, I saw it ages ago, so I, right. I barely remember it. Uh, yeah, it didn't really register with me. It's, I mean, if you're in, it's spooky season, right? You were probably yeah. able to add it to your 31 Days of Horror. I did. Yeah, I'm gonna add it to that. But um, I mean, my whole thing though is that I I saw half of it at South by Southwest or on the um, whatever you could, the website for it and my link expired before i could finish it so uh without giving away too much about the film it's a lot of like setup or it's like kind of like this building mystery and i was very intrigued and you that's why i wanted to finish this it time. Finish months it. and months of like this mystery this must be an amazing payoff i've been waiting and waiting well, and it's, i saw the rest yeah. of reviews and i knew it wasn't like amazing but i was intrigued i was like well sure, maybe sure. the payoff is pretty good and i felt like you know uh, watching that and then rewatching those scenes and leading up to the second half of the film, I was like, maybe this is like, you know, it's going to build up something cool. And it, it doesn't, I guess, without, like I said, giving anything away. It just kind of, yeah, it's kind of ends. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. like, oh, well, I don't really know what the point of all that was, but um, I'm sure there's, you know, I mean, I get like the broader point. I just, I don't really get the desire to make the film, I guess, but I mean, it's not yeah. a bad film or anything. It's yeah, just it's not bad it's, at all. It's just kind of fine. I'm I hope we can have a conversation at a later date about horror movies in 2021 because I've been very disappointed but I don't know if everybody has been there are very few like horror movies I can look at that I'm like man those are that was one of my favorite movies of the year there's almost none probably so yeah I mean I don't know if it's been a good year for horror mm, I guess not I mean there's been some stuff I guess if you count to Tain, uh which I do is like a body horror. I film. don't know if I count that as it's like yeah I don't know but um, we didn't see Lamb, which I've heard mixed things about. Um, that was a big horror film. Uh, I saw yeah, Antlers, yeah. which um, I don't know if we're discussing for a bonus episode next week. But I thought that was all right. Um, yeah. There's also Last Night in Soho, which yeah, you know, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We're going to do a review for that later this week. But right. that is technically a horror film, like the second well, yeah. half of it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I was super disappointed by Last Night in Soho. Yeah. So I mean, we'll talk um, about it. Malignant was pretty fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah, but even then, that's a movie that I didn't really get into until the very end. Sure. Conjuring 3 was kind of a big disappointment. That was Knock Knock and Censor. Yeah, I don't know. Night House was okay. I mean, um, one of the better ones, I guess, but it still wasn't that great. I don't know, man. I think you mean Knocking. Knock Knock is the uh, Eli oh, yeah, Roth yeah, yeah. film. Knock, Eli Roth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking um, about Knocking. Right, the Knocking. Sundance. Yeah, very mm-hmm. forgettable film. Um so as you uh, suggested but um yeah i don't know maybe that new paranormal activity movie that they're dumping on paramount plus is like secretly amazing probably not but who knows <laughs> probably not i don't know how to tell you this i think it's gonna be pretty pretty bad but i hope not i mean i, I would be th- over the moon if we got an awesome paranormal activity movie i love those are you a fan yeah movies, i was gonna say you like every those. other one yeah it's um, it's like the it's like the daniel craig james bond movies it's like every other one like the first paranormal activity, great. Third one's the best of yeah, probably third the one's, best. I would say the good one. And then the rest I'm kinda like I mean the first one I respect. And the second one I'm kinda yeah, in yeah. the same camp. I'm like, yeah. First I mean, one's I, respectable. The fifth one is actually like the fourth one's pretty bad. That's the fifth the, one I actually think is the one that comes yeah. close to rivaling the third one. 
Really? I thought the fifth one was the worst one. That's the 3D one, Marked right? ones? No, wait, no, no, no. That one I liked. Um, I thought you, that's like the spinoff, though. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. I was talking about Where's... the 3D one. That's, I think, like, the last one before this one that was, like... The Dimension one? Yeah, whatever. That was, that was, that's the worst one. That's awful. Yeah, that one sucked. Um, yeah, the fourth one was just sort of, like, whatever. And then I did, like, yeah, I like Marked Ones, and I like the third movie. The rest, I'm kind of yeah. give or take outside the first film. The fourth one's not terrible. Like the fourth one is just kind of, it has like a good ending at least, but like it's a kind of a bit of a slog as a very predictable twist. Yeah. It's not great, but yeah, I like the movies. Like I like them in like half, you know? So I guess we're due for a good one, right? I mean, hopefully the one, like I said, I'm pretty sure this movie's got to suck. I can't imagine they would just put it on, Paramount Plus feels like amazing, but the one advantage I think to watching at home is that they they kind of work better at home anyway. Like if you're like watching them, like you're discovering found footage. I, I love the Paramount Activity crowd that I used to go yeah. to the movies to. See. I mean, the only one of these I did see, I did see. Okay, I saw Marked Ones and I saw Ghost Dimension in California, but the other ones I saw in a theater in Virginia, and that was oh boy, I mean that's a fun experience. People get your, scared. Yeah. I mean, to your point, I think the only ones I saw like with an actual crowd were the third one and marked ones, which were my favorite. So you might have a fair point to that. It might just be a correlation of the fact that those had some buzz around them. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, the third one, when you get to that like final act and, the, and then you're in the theater. I mean, the first one too, the first one had that like novelty factor, right? Like we didn't know what we were in for. And I remember seeing that in like midnight screening. I, I was on a date and like there were only like four other people uh, in there oh boy <laughs> no but like everybody in that theater was like i hate this i don't want to be here and i'm sitting there being like this is amazing i didn't sleep right. for weeks it was so great i mean at the very least i think the first one is an amazing underdog story as far as like being whatever the budget was for that film like twenty thousand oh, sure. dollars making like 100 million plus like well well over it's a budget. I mean, that's like just incredible. I think that's, you know, the true victory of that series. The, I mean, outside of how I feel about the films uh, on a whole, but yeah, I don't know. This new one's probably going to okay. suck. I, I think I guess, we can stop yeah, talking about <laughs> I think I think we talked ourselves into watching it now. I mean, <laughs> now that we kind of uh, did I mean, off topics by accident about it. So if at least two people are interested in hearing our thoughts, I think we'll do a bonus episode. How about that? There we go. Yeah. yeah. Email us cinemahawkspodcast yeah. at gmail.com or drop us a line on Twitter or whatever. Please let us know is it worth covering? <laughs> so I would, I would like to give it a shot, but we'll see if that actually happens. All right. We have three pretty decent sized movies to get into. So I don't want to waste any more time and not waste time, but you know, I don't want to lose any more time because Dune is a long movie. Hey, Cinemaholic. So sorry to interject, to interrupt myself, but real quick, gotta say the Dune review is about to happen. We're going to talk about Dune. It's phenomenal. It's, it's quite a review. We talk about in this review something that I have to clear up here at the start, that there is going to be a sequel. Dune 2, Dune Part 2 is going to happen, and we didn't know that while we were recording. The news broke literally while we were putting the bells and whistles. Like Will Ashen was just finishing up the printing press. He had just put on the seal. I had just, you know, beckoned the editor-in-chief. We were like, we got this. This thing's rolling out. So we're doing this, like, last-minute disclaimer. The news broke. There's going to be a sequel. So when you hear us talking about, like, is there going to be a sequel? It's not a pointless conversation, but that is why it's instantly dated. It's very embarrassing, even more embarrassing than usual for us. But I hope this disclaimer will calm you down, keep you afloat, 
and we can just get right back into the review. Let's do this thing. Dune is our first review this week, and it is a big, big deal. I mean, this yeah. movie, a lot of people were looking at Dune and they were saying, if this movie is successful or it's not successful, it could mean a lot of big things for Warner Brothers and for the industry. Do you agree with that? Will, did you, do you think the stakes were high with Dune? Yeah, I mean, for obvious reasons, obviously, like there was a lot put into it. And it's not like it's an original property. Obviously, it's based on Frank Herbert's, uh, you know, foundational book as far as uh, how it influenced the sci-fi genre moving yeah, forward. Yeah. But it's a 1965 I mean, novel. Yeah. Well, it's old. I mean, I don't know if we need to get into the whole history of why Dune is such a, you know, foundational text, as I mentioned. But I mean, the long and short of it is just that it's this really big book that is really key to like how world building is perceived now. I mean, certainly its influence, yeah, I yeah. think indirectly, was really big as far as like influencing uh, like a movie like Star Wars. Like, I, I think you don't have Star yeah. Wars without Dune. You do um, not. It's yeah. the, and, the two big yeah. inspirations are Dune or there are three big inspirations, Dune, Flash Gordon and Kurosawa. Like those yes, are the three. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's just it's kind of like a weird John Carter situation where it's like, I mean, obviously there was the Dune movie from um, David Lynch in the 80s. And I think there are other like adaptations. Like, was there like a show? Adapt- like there was a mini series. Yeah. yeah, like twenty years ago. I never saw it, but I heard it's actually pretty competent. Like okay. people, the people go to bat for that mini series. Apparently, I've never seen it. Where did that air? I have no idea. Okay, uh, I just didn't know. I I was just learning about that this week, so I I'm not too familiar with it. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I forgot it. I mean, I kind of remember it because people have been talking about remaking Dune for years. There was mm-hmm. the Alexander Todorovsky dune that was yeah. supposed to be a thing i remember like we talked about it a little bit mm-hmm. i don't think i don't know if you and i talked about it when we were talking about alien because yeah when david lynch eventually got dune there was like alien was kind of like the precursor to can we pull off a movie like this yes. and can you know ridley scott was given that project he was heavily inspired by some of the pre-production that was going into Todorovsky's dune so yeah i mean it, it's an important movie, but it's not a movie that I think everybody's seen and sunk their teeth into, their sandworm teeth into, yeah. I guess. Well, I mean, the Hodorowski film, as you mentioned, I think that's kind of where I was talking about with the Star Wars thing, where, like, even though that movie wasn't made, as you see in the documentary, like, the storyboards and stuff were very keenly influencing how the visual yeah. aesthetic of Star Wars was made and all that. So, yeah, I mean, even if, like, outside of just the book itself, just like the attempts to bring this movie to the screen have been influential in their own weird indirect sort of way. So yeah, I mean, the fact that we actually have like a big, bold, faithful adaptation of the uh, text coming to the screen, that's a big deal for sci-fi fans, obviously. But also, like you say, like having another property like this, where like, if this does well, you know, this is our next big, huge franchise. Like people are putting the same claims into this as like, maybe this is our next Lord of the Rings. Maybe this is our next, like, whatever, you know, in terms of franchises and stuff. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know if, I don't know how far this is going to go as far as, like, Denise Villeneuve's uh, um, involvement. I don't know if he's going to stay past a intended second film of this, but, you know, clearly with all the books that uh, are at their disposal from Frank Herbert's collection, you know, this could very well go on to be a very big uh, franchise if this is uh, well, yeah. as successful as they hope. Two things, two things to be clear on. This is a part one. So if we did get one more movie, at least it would just be finishing the first book. But to your point, yeah, they could keep it going after that. And I think that at the very least, secondly, Denis Villeneuve would 
do the second one. Like that was the plan. I think the issue, the reason they didn't Lord of the Rings this, where they do all three movies back to back and just just do it, even though they don't know if it's going to be successful, is really because Dune it, it's it's too ambitious. Like it would have been too much work to do the movies back to back. I mean, it's already yeah. hard to do that anyway, but logistically. Like they, they wouldn't have been able to secure like all the actors. They wouldn't have been able to, to just handle all of the, the bulk of the pre-production in time to make two, both of these movies in one go. So that's kind of why we are where we are. Yeah. I mean, I guess the most comparable would be like it as far as like just kind of doing the first half of it and then being like, we would like to do a second one. We haven't greenlit yet, but if you sure. guys like this, please come out to see it because then we can get the financing to do the second one. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I I know this is kind of a relic of its time in many respects, but also like that trend uh, that we saw like in the early 2010s where they would just flip books in half, sometimes quite egregiously, like with the um, uh, Hunger Games film yeah, mockingjay part one we, yeah that was like a 200 page book <laughs> right split in two it's pretty sad yeah i think the most uh, egregious and funniest example was the last divergent film which was right uh, which never even got it yeah part they never two. even got it's part two which is so funny it was at least it was at least smart though it was like they figured out they couldn't just say part one part two at that point they were like well we can't call it allegiant part one they had to do whatever it was yeah. but algorithm or I, whatever yeah, they just gave it a different title. Yeah, that's, like, that's all they did. And then I think they were supposed to like add extra content to the books, which is like, yeah, that, that makes sense. You could do that. And then like Avengers, Infinity War, Avengers Endgame, Justice League, like those were all supposed to be like part one, part two, because they were taking a cue from Harry Potter. Like that's where this really kind of became a, hey, maybe yeah. this is the way to do this kind of right. thing. I mean, I mean, obviously, I think there's also like the Game of Thrones influence coming around this time as well. Like just like, you know, having like these huge books that, you know, were, were split up into like this big longstanding series. Like obviously it's been done right. before on TV, but like weirdly, like Dune was so influential to like George R. R. Martin. But then like, you know, the Game of Thrones, that's probably like a big reason why we have Dune now. So it's like kind of a weird cyclical kind of thing going on there. But that's neither here nor there. Mm. I think uh, I don't. I don't know if I would go that far. I think Martin, Game of Thrones for him, A Song of Ice and Fire wasn't really he. The thing about Martin is he had a huge like sci-fi, you know, background. Like he did fantasy, and then and of course like Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire. Like that was his like bread and butter eventually. But a lot of his sci-fi bona fides were really developed in like the 1950s and the 1960s. But that's actually a good pivot into I think a unique thing about dune in the 1965 era is that like up until that point sci-fi wasn't like this like when we say dune influenced star wars we're not talking about sheer sci-fi we're talking about the idea of having like a desert planet and having like low budget like lo-fi technology but in a space futuristic setting Mm -hmm. like that very much is what frank herbert helped sort of like bring about in a big way, because before that we had things like we had Philip K. Dick. We we had sci-fi that was very like robots, and yeah, we had uh, like the Blade Runner stuff. I guess uh, we had what uh, Philip K. Dick uh, was like the android dream of electric sheep. I should be more specific, but yeah, we we had space and we had like Star Trek, right? Pretty much like yeah. that kind of like sci-fi world where it's like super high tech, super advanced kind of civilizations. Thing. Jetsons, thank you. Yeah. Whereas like this stuff is more of like, what if it was the Bible, but with 
space, you know, like, basically. And that, um, that's where you yeah. have to do I mean, if, if you're looking at him like as a space messiah, sure. I mean, Frank Herbert obviously took a lot from like a lot of religions and texts and all that to make do. For sure. But, but yeah, religion as far as like Catholicism is certainly a big part of it for sure. Which was radical for the time because sci-fi at that point and space, like this stuff used to be fully associated with hard science and logic and, and that sort of thing. It wasn't something that religion really delved into as much. Like this idea of like a cosmic force, like in Star Wars, like that is what really Dune helped establish and validate as you could do something like this. Like this is actually something that these are things that go well together. This is peanut butter cup, you know, Reese's and all that. But we mentioned Denis Villeneuve. He's the director of this film. I think this this film, in my opinion, is going to solidify him as the big budget sci-fi director. This is his third one. Uh, in terms of sci-fi, because he did Arrival, which wasn't like a massive movie, but it was a big deal. It, would, it hit pop culture. It's still memefied today. It won some Oscars. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Amy Adams' terrific performance from her in it, mm -hmm. and it had some big ideas. It was just adapting like a short story, though. In terms of scope, it was kind of a small movie compared to when he does Blade Runner 2049, which is this massive expansion of the 1980s Blade Runner mm -hmm. and 2049, which I maintain one of the the actual like all time great sci fi movies of the modern era. I was actually listening, re listening to our conversation about Blade Runner 2049, and I'm like, man, my enthusiasm for this movie has not waned one bit. I was all in on Blade Runner 2049 back in 2017. I still am. It's a good film. I like it a lot. It's it's so good, and I I really I'm due for a rewatch. That's for sure. Now sure. that said, I bring that up because. I've been curious, like, how is Dune going to do, right? Blade Runner That's 2049. Dune. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this movie, Blade Runner 2049, it wasn't like a flop. Like, it probably lost some money, but it didn't lost, lose a ton of money. It uh, made something around $260 million. Its yeah. budget is ballpark about half of that. So it made about double its budget, but I think a lot of that's international. I think it was in the red, but it wasn't like an egregious, like, oh my gosh, like it's not like the last duel, which is currently flailing in the, in the, the box office right now. Yeah. I mean, the weird thing about Denise Villeneuve is that like, he's such a big name as far as, uh, his critic accolades. And like, he has like a clear, like fan base at this point, but his films, I mean, like arrival and Sicaro and prisoners, I think they all did well, but they weren't like huge hits. Like, I mean, I think they just did like, they got probably out of the red, but not like they weren't, you know, very lucrative. I guess Sicaro was lucrative enough to get a sequel, but yeah. Um, mm. yeah. I mean, like he you hasn't know, like, had his dark night yet. Right. Right. Yeah. He's he not, didn't have, he's yeah. kind of like a, he's like a Christopher Nolan sort of successor. I wouldn't say successor, but he uh, kind of is a similar sorta. sort of guy in terms of like his movies are expected to be spectacular. They're, they're expected to be spectacle machines at this mm -hmm. point. Like he's building that reputation. He started with smaller films and now he's expanding, but he hasn't adapted. Uh, I think purposely. So he hasn't adapted something as popular as like Batman. That's going to be, super well received i think dune is one of the bigger attempts he's making to I mean, carve out a franchise i would argue there's certainly i mean 
Blade Runner is such a huge property that, you know, I mean, I like that he, you know, it wasn't like a Colin Trevorrow thing where he just like went from like micro indie, like incendies to Blade Runner 2049. He like, you know, clearly did his homework. He built his way up to something like this. And I think Dune, you know, it it feels like you can tell, like, just like like you said, like all the films that he made leading up to this feel like if you look at it, like it does feel like an escalator up to like this. Cause clearly he's wanted to do this film for a long time. This is a very big passion project for him. He's not coming into this as like a director for hire. Like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, it's not like David Lynch just being like, yeah, I guess I can do something with this. Like he clearly is very passionate about this, has wanted to tell the story. He's very adamant that people see in theaters and support it so that he can make the second film and complete the story, at least as far as the first book is concerned. And um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I think it definitely is a successful story as far as like a director, really building his brand and getting to make this big adaptation that he's wanted to make since probably childhood. So in that respect, it is a success. You can tell Warner brothers has put a lot of faith into this movie being a success for them. I think that you can see it in, in all of the marketing weight they put behind it. A huge risk. Of course, they premiered it at the Venice international film festival. Clearly they wanted Dune. They want Dune to really hit people. They want people to watch this thing. And so far, people are obliging. It's already made almost as much as Blade Runner 2049 in one weekend. We'll get to that a little bit later. But let's talk about the actual movie. So Dune Part 1, if you want to call it that, which we might as well, is it, it covers about the first half of the first book, which I know, I think you've read the first around the first half of the first book i have two so i'm kind okay. of, i'm aware I, I know what happens because of the david lynch movie i mean i shouldn't say that because do we any of us really know what happened in the david lynch movie? sure it's a um, bizarre it's a bar, bizarre yeah. film i encourage people to seek it out but it it requires a lot of patience and a curiosity for film history that you have to bring to it i'll put it that yeah, way i believe it's uh it's it's streaming on hbo max at the moment i believe right I'm not sure. That okay. that would be very convenient. <laughs> you could just kind of check that out after you see this Dune. Although I, I kind of went into this almost a blank slate in terms. I mean, I, I know Dune I, I, enough. Like I, I understand like the basics and everything. But I mean, the book doesn't really hold your hand. I still felt like the film would educate me a lot on the fine details of this universe, if that makes sense. And I think that is what ended up happening. There are some things from the book I was kind of, I didn't, I didn't fully understand that the movie kind of crystallized a little bit. I, but at, at the same time, I think the movie is also skewing a lot. It's simplifying a lot of what happens in the book yeah. and almost translating it to like a more refined cinematic presentation. Yeah. It, it threads a lot of the, the material in a way that I think, as an adaptation, I think it is fairly successful because I think you read Dune and it's like, I mean, like you said, I'm I'm maybe almost 300 pages into it and I get the gist of it, but there's a lot of stuff I just kind of have to like assume I'm getting uh, as far as like conception or like visualization of it. But um, yeah, I mean, I think as far as like bringing this story to a wide audience and making it comprehensive enough to understand while also being idiosyncratic enough to respect the material, I think that's something this movie does incredibly well. And then something I have to really respect Denis Villeneuve for accomplishing and the screenwriters as well, obviously, because that is uh, certainly not an easy thing to do with a text like this. Absolutely. The other screenwriters are John Spates and Eric Roth. And I think that 
for the most part, I, I think the screenplay in terms of where things go and where things are, I always understood what was happening in this movie. I always understood what characters wanted, what they were trying to do. I, I mean, without getting too far ahead of myself, I just I don't think the writing, though, is pitch perfect. I think that there are a lot of beats that I thought were confoundingly dumb in terms of like dialogue. And you mean in the movie or in the book, in the movie, in the okay. movie. Yeah, I'm talking. Yeah, about, sure. I'm talking about the screenplay strictly. But sure. real quick, we'll say the setup here. It, it's not that complicated, I don't think. I mean, I think what gets complicated is more of the lore. But in terms of the setup, it's pretty easy to follow. We kind of already mentioned it's like a space messiah story. The idea is that we're ten thousand years in the future. Mankind has reached the stars. We have interstellar travel, but the only way that we can have interstellar travel is the use of this powerful spice that can basically get you high. It's like a drug, but it can also make ships go zoom. So there is that. And the spice is only available. It's like like gas and weed at the same time and beer. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You can, uh, and you can only find it in one place, this desert planet called Arrakis. Now, there's this emperor of the whole galaxy. We don't meet him in this movie or her. I, I don't know uh, what they're going to do for that. But the emperor of the galaxy sort of manipulates a bit of a, a feudal war. That's where the Game of Thrones comparisons can kind of be made. There's the noble House Stark. I, I mean, the House Atreides, uh, led by Oscar Isaac. And he has a son with his concubine. His concubine is played by Rebecca Ferguson. His son, Paul, is played by Timothy Chalamet. Paul is the sort of Jesus figure here because on the one hand, he's like the noble son of of a noble house. They've been tasked by the emperor to go to Arrakis and bring this planet under control because even though the spice is there and it's a desert planet, it's not heavily inhabited. It is inhabited by dangerous forces, these massive sandworms that can basically follow human footsteps extremely easily. And so it's very dangerous to try to mine resources. The environment is is not hospitable. It's very difficult to survive. But there is a faction on this planet called the Fremen. And Paul, even though he's never been to Arrakis, he keeps having these visions, these dreams of him being on Arrakis ahead of time. It's why is that happening? And we sort of find out that he has these special space powers because of his mother, played by Rebecca Ferguson, who has been training him all his life in a very, you know, Mary, the Virgin Mary kind of fashion to be this sort of like powerful messianic figure who's going to save everyone. And eventually they go to Arrakis, but it's not going to be so easy because there is another feuding war, this this house led by uh, Stellan Skarsgård. I almost said Bill Skarsgård because he was in Eternals. Uh, but Stellan Skarsgård as the unbelievably villainous Mad Max-esque Baron who can like levitate and he's hideous, but he's also extremely powerful. Dave Batista yeah. is his fist, you know, his right hand. And they're, they're here to try to get the spice for themselves and get the emperor's favor. We also have Jason Momoa on team house Atreides, you know, com- coming in there as a uh, Poe Dameron. Yeah. I was gonna say he has my favorite name, uh, in, in the movie and the book, which is Duncan Idaho. Cause I love that, you know, like <laughs> we have like these like exotic, weird, far out names. Then we have characters like Paul and Jessica and Duncan Idaho, which I just, I find very yeah. amusing, which again, yeah, I think of star Wars, you know, Luke, Skywalker. <laughs> it's kind of a funny thing. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. 
Yeah, we also have Charlotte Rampling in this movie. Josh Brolin is kind of this man at arms character. There's a lot of there's a lot going on. There's a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of action. I would say that the first first part of this movie to me is a kind of an extended prologue. It takes us a while to get to Arrakis. If you didn't think that the movie was just going to cover the first part of the book, then like, by the part one, you kind of get the gist of that once it's like, oh, we're like an hour in and we're not even like the plot hasn't really started yet. We're still doing a lot of setup. This movie is in a lot of ways so much setup. There really are just sort of like building up the big stuff that's going to happen later because again like there there are some actors in here like Zendaya and Javier Bardem who they're in the movie but not a lot and we get the hints that like oh maybe their characters are going to be a little bit more important I mean for sure they're going to be more important and the next one which I I would say I'll let a guarantee I I think that this movie is going to get a part two I I think Villeneuve based on the critics uh, raving about this movie and the fact that it is making plenty of money, it's made yeah. more money during the pandemic from Warner Brothers than I think anything else that's been day and date. Right. And it's doing well on HBO Max, supposedly. Well, I mean, we don't have the numbers to support that, but apparently it is. I, I, look, I looked into some of it, and I think that it's doing decent on HBO Max. It's doing better in theaters. So there is sure. this sort of... I think the indication based on what I understand is that Warner Brothers is seeing there is an appetite to see this on the big screen, which is probably way more exciting to them, that people are choosing to see this in theaters instead of on HBO Max, or they're doing both, right? And that, yeah. that for them is a good, because even if this first one isn't like a massive hit for them, that means people people who watch this in theaters will definitely see it again, So that's a, and they like it. Right. The, the scores are great, Like there's good mm-hmm. word of mouth. So people will watch another one. And I think that it's going to build traction over time on HBO Max. People are going to read the book. And so this this is how you get a sequel that right. they will hopefully look at as like, we should do the sequel because the sequel could be even bigger right. because people are in. Yeah, I mean, a big thing with sequels, as far as like what you're suggesting, is that like not only is there interest in continuing this, but is there the chance that, like you said, there's renewed interest, like people want and are actively seeking a continuation, it would go out of their way to see it for that reason. So, yeah, I think it would make sense. I'm pretty sure the CEO, if I'm recalling correctly, has said like it's all but guaranteed at this point that they're going to do a second one. So it seems pretty likely it's going to happen. Absolutely, especially because they've already done the hard work to get this thing off the ground because a lot of like with, with pre-production a lot of figuring out things is the art direction the costumes the tone how the movie works how it functions and they already did that like we have that in part one so there isn't a huge cost in terms of time and resources to keep this thing going uh like comparatively so yeah i think it, i think it's a done deal i think that yeah. Bill Nuff is going to keep it going. He's going to finish it with part two after that. Who knows? But I, I, I doubt we'll get anything else from him on this. I think he'll move on. But Probably. I think at the very least, yeah, people are people are anxious to see what happens next for this story. But as a movie, I mean, this is not a standalone movie. Will, how do you how do you juggle that? I mean, do you, do you sort of have an opinion that feels holistic with this movie anyway? Yeah, I mean, I I see it as pretty at peace with the novel in that for me like reading the book i feel like it doesn't like the plot doesn't really kick in until like 
page 150 or 200 or whatever. It's mostly about kind of establishing the lore and like you're saying, like the world building, the, the sense of like what it is like on Arachnus and these other otherworldly places and stuff like that. And I respect that Denis Villeneuve is really just getting you into this other place. Like I think, especially if you see this in theaters in IMAX or something adjacent to it, you, you really get the sense of like this kind of like all encompassing vibe where you feel like you know because the score is so big it's so like theatrical and its presentation and all that it it does feel very like encompassing in a way that i think is you know obviously very cinematic and and denis Villeneuve has been like please see my movie in theaters like i would rather you see my movie in theater not only because it would support me and support the film and get a sequel but because that's how i intended the film to be seen also i feel like that's the most affecting way to see the film and obviously there are people who can't for for various reasons but uh, i think if you can see in theaters this is one you should obviously seek out because it is so big and grand and it feels so singular to something like, even though we have all these uh, films that are going for this, uh, you know, cinematic universes and all this stuff, this feels like it is going for something, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to make the obvious comparison kind of Kubrickian in that sense, like feeling kind of so massive and and so all encompassing in its scale and scope. And I, I think there are obviously issues with that. And I, I don't think it obviously always works in terms of pacing and stuff. But I, I think more often than not, when it really hits its stride, it, it is something to be seen on the big screen and it can be very affecting in that respect. I think everything you're saying is what is getting people to the theater? Because I think people are picking up on that intuitively that if they go to the movies, they're making a deal with Warner Brothers here. We're like, I'm going to see something larger than life. I'm going to see yeah. a shadow of something I've never seen before. I mean, that's what got them to go see Godzilla versus Kong. They're like, that's what I want to see. I want to see something that can't fit on my small screen. I mean, it can technically, but thematically and emotionally no like they they want that experience and i think that's going to be warner brothers big lesson from 2021 i mean look at if the suicide squad had not been such a huge disappointment i think that they would be doubling down more on like well we got to put all our resources into comic book stuff mm-hmm. not these more like adult centered films these films that are inviting people to see something in a format that just doesn't do otherwise, if that makes sense. Suicide Squad, I think people looked at that and were like, I could just watch that at home and it, I like it. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, I mean, like I said before, I think the easiest comparison for me is a John Carter because that was another film or another book, I mean, John Carter of Mars, where it obviously was so precedent and what it was doing and so influential that when we finally got the movie, it felt like we had already like seen however many adaptations, even though it was the first time it was brought to the screen. But I think, yeah, you know, it, it's it been, started the cliches, but there's still right. cliches now, you know? Right, exactly. But I think, I mean, it's been a decade since I've seen it. So maybe if I rewatched the film, I would like it more. But I remember at the time it, it, it had, um, it had inability to really feel accessible beyond like just kind of doing what we expected these sort of films. Like there's some great scenes in there, but for the most part, it kind of was going through the motions in a way that even though it was uh, like kind of the origin in some respect for these type of stories, it it just didn't really feel in terms of its filmmaking, like it was doing anything unique and grand. And I like that this movie is acknowledging that in the sense of like, okay, we're not really going to be focusing so much on like the hero's journey and, you know, telling the story in that respect, but rather just like the vibes, uh, you know, for, 
to, to make it more modern in my terminology, uh, you know, just kind of getting it like this sense of the scope and getting the grandness of it and all that, like I said. And I think, you know, I mean, that, that can make it a little um, maybe uh, not as fulfilling because we're only getting half of the story. And I think maybe once you get the second half, it'll it'll be easier to appreciate this first half for that reason. But I think that approach as far as like Denis Villeneuve just getting you into world, appreciating the world, getting to know these characters and stuff like that, but not selling you the whole pie quite yet. I think it was a gamble, but I think for for him, I think he did it the right way. Yeah, for me, I, I ultimately land positive on this movie, but I definitely I, I, I definitely have issues with just how aside from the scope of it, because I think we could definitely agree on that. I think Villeneuve put so much care, attention and focus on making you see something really epic and feeling immersed. And that's so important. And the fact that he nails that and condenses the story, too, is pretty, pretty remarkable. But I think my, my issue, honestly, is that. I just did not emotionally hook with anything that was going on here. I think that when it came down to why are we here? What what are what are the moods of this movie? Why do I care about Paul? Why do I care about Duncan Idaho? Why do I care about the Fremen? I think that it was getting to that. It was getting to the point where like this is going to be when the movie comes together and I'm going to suddenly it's like turning the page and like, I can't stop reading the book of like, I want to see what happens next. I want to see what happens to this character, but I, we, I don't think we really get that. We kind of get an extended chase scene in terms of like the driving narrative. And along the way, all of these visual sides of here's Paul in this situation, here's Paul sort of like dreaming and kind of in a trance and none of it ever really connected for me. I, I think the opportunity there is you have this this story, this this political bent to this this movie being like it's in the future. So why is everything regressed to the feudal era? That's where I think like the story kind of needs to build from. But I don't know. I don't I don't at least on my first viewing, I don't think it does much with that. Like I, I didn't know if this movie was really about anything beyond let's do some cool space stuff and weird things happen and wait until the next one. You'll understand why. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if we're comparing this to Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows part one, like obviously viewers don't have like that that love and care that they already established for the, the, the protagonists at that point. So it's not like, you know, it, the fact that they were able to spin their wheels a bit with that film was a luxury because, you know, like they're just, uh, they audiences were already caring enough about the books and the films at that point that they have that luxury. But I think, yeah, I mean, there is that established fan base with the, the, the novel and, and stuff. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I can get that like, if you're watching this uh, without much awareness of that, it, it, it can feel a bit odd. And, and I did feel that at times, even having read uh, a chunk of the book, I did kind of feel like, well, you know, in a modern lens, like I can get why uh, Paul is a big character in the 60s. But like, why should we really care about this dude uh, in a present day lens? And I wish there was a little bit more done to make him more approachable or a little bit more diverse or dynamic in uh, a modern sense. But at the same time, I, like I said, I, I think the fact that the movie cares so much about establishing tone and world and vibe and, uh, you know, making the characters present and, and giving them some established gravitas, but not uh, 
uh, focusing so much on them that we have to be, you know, sent, the, the narrative, the pool of it doesn't have to be crucial to us caring so much about them at this point, uh, I think is successful. But I can understand where you're coming from. Yeah, I, I sympathize, honestly, with Volnub and the screenwriters because it's not like they have the luxury of Blade Runner 2049 where you have the freedom, you know, it's, it's a sequel of an adaptation. They had so much room with Blade Runner to sort of build out this Ryan Gosling character who I think is so much more instantly. I care about this person like quickly and easily because they were able to just sort of build him from the ground up with Dune. You kind of are working within the novel constraints where Frank Herbert was a writer in the sixties and I think that, yeah, things have changed in terms of like, what do we want from our main characters? What do we, you know, the evolution of that main character, the white savior trope and all that stuff. I can see how Denis is, he's building to that probably. I I think this movie is sort of setting itself as like a subversion of the, some of those things, but that's, I said this in my review. I think that it's because it's half a movie and we don't get the other half. I'm just sort of left with what I got and what I received and what I received is promising, but it's, it's not a movie that I, I, I I find myself like anxious to keep going with. I I will see the next one because I'm invested enough and I want to support just on my own personal basis. I want to support movies like this. I think more movies like this should come out and yeah, I, I wish though, I think Blade Runner 2049, I wish that had been more successful because that to me is like, that's the slam dunk. Like that's the one that, that I think I felt way more immersed in that movie compared to this one. I felt way more invested in and clued in. So it is kind of strange to me that this is the one that's like striking a chord with people. I don't know if it's because people love Chalamet or if it's because I, I wonder if it's just the nature of where people are at in 2021, honestly. They feel like, and also because it is the beginning of a franchise, whereas like Blade Runner did have a barrier to entry. Like you kind of said before, it's like, oh, Blade Runner is this big thing. Not really. Like most people haven't seen the first Blade Runner outside uh, of people who I don't love know. I'm cinema. I'm going to have to push back, but I get what you're saying. I don't. I don't know about that. I, I think people have seen Blade Runner. It's not like a cult film or anything like. It's not that, but it's not necessarily like. I don't think it's the kind of movie that a ton of people have seen or feel like they've seen recently enough to be like, well, I'm going to see the sequel. Whereas like Dune, I guess it's easier just sort of get into. It's like, it's the first one. And you're like, oh, here's a new big thing. We're coming out of a pandemic. I'm ready to go to the movies to see some, like the start of something new. I, I want something new because lately everything big that's been coming out has been a replication of something else. It's been a Godzilla movie. It's been a, another Suicide Squad. Okay, you know it's it's this new Marvel movie that's going to do Marvel stuff. You know, I, I wonder if that's why Free Guy was such a big success, right? Because Free Guy was like, hey, new thing. And Ryan Reynolds, I like Ryan Reynolds, but it's a new thing. It's a new story and it's big and it looks like they actually spent money on it. So I'll go see it. Yeah, I mean, it's because I think, I mean, there are a lot of reasons. I think it's, you know, like we said, Denise Villeneuve has a proven track record. I think it's because, you know, they've made a big point being like, you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't see us in theaters. It's also, I think, because to simplify it, it does look like moody Star Wars. (laughs) You know, it's just like it's Star Wars, but like a little bit more adult or a little bit heavier. And I think, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's an amalgamation of things. I also think it's the fact that people are getting more booster shots and feel more comfortable going to the theater to see it. Uh, I think that's very big reasons why people are coming out. But um, yeah, I mean, 
I I guess for me, where I found myself surprised was that I was expecting the first half to be a bit of a slog, and then like I'd be more won over with the second half. Whereas I think it was more the opposite. Like I think I was really impressed with how big and grand the movie is for the first two hours, and then I felt the weight of it in like the the remaining thirty minutes. Um, maybe that's because that started to get into the stuff I haven't read in the book and all that, but. Um, I, I, I felt like that was where like the, 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 the heaviness of it was kind of coming in. Cause I was kind of wondering like, okay, at what point are they going to stop? And we're going to be like part two, uh, because it kind of felt like it could at any moment just like cut off. And I exactly, get why yeah. they ended it where they ended it. Like I think thematically without getting, um, too much in the spoilers, I get like, that's like the turning point for Paul. And like, that's like the point where he becomes truly like a man. And like the, the second half is going to be like the, like the the mod dib stuff or however you pronounce that um but yeah i mean i i think it, it makes sense what they're doing at this and it does feel like very heavily storyboard probably to a fault in that like it kind of feels like you're going through emotions towards those scenes because it's like this is the setup this is the setup this is the setup all right but don't get too attached you know we, we still have four more years before we're going to get the second film so maybe that's the reason why i was kind of starting to drift out of it towards the end because i felt like i didn't want to get too heavily attached to what was going on but um yeah i mean at the same time though i just I just really appreciate and respect what Denis Villeneuve was able to pull off. And I think it's not a simple task in the least to say that, you know, making this even the least bit successful or uh, accessible, I mean, to to wide audiences is a huge feat. And uh, even though, like, you know, like they're simplifying it and thread threading it together in a, in a more uh, approachable way, I think the fact that he's able to keep the core foundation and be faithful to the book in so many respects while making this a big, huge blockbuster that is bringing a lot of people to the movie theater is just a really big deal. And I have to admire that for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I'm with you there. I really am. And I, I real quick on the performances. I mean, I, I think some of the characters are much better than others. I, I think the only times this movie really had me by the chin was when we were with Oscar Isaac or Rebecca Ferguson. Like whenever the movie was sort of about their differing parenting styles and just like how Paul is like being influenced by both of them, that's when the movie kind of really worked for me. And I, I liked both of them a lot in this. Shalmay is okay. I, I, I don't have issues with his performance generally. But other than that, yeah, I, I, <laughs> some of the other characters are in here uh, for sure. But I didn't really click with anybody else in this movie for the most part. I, I think like Josh Brolin kind of just, I, I feel like we were missing something with him almost like there, there should have been a little bit more to his character or something, but we, we get fun stuff with him. It's, it's not yeah. like this movie is like lacking, you know, like Duncan Idaho, he gets, he gets some cool moments too. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I think outside of Aquaman, I think Jason Momoa is just better as a supporting actor. Like I think he's able to be more charismatic and fun in roles like these. And I think that's, where I appreciate him more, at least. But yeah, I do agree with you because I like Gurney in the book. I believe that's um, Josh Brolin's character in this. And I felt like they took a lot of his stuff out in this film. So I'm hoping that means that he plays a bigger part in the second film. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't think any performance like blew me away, but I didn't think anyone did a bad job. Um, I guess for me, my central complaint of the film, uh, and I'm not sure if you agree with this or not, is that I wish... Even though I understand why they took the tone they took, I kind of wish that Denis Villeneuve had more of a sense of humor in his films. Like I just, I kind of wish that he was. Even though this movie is willing to be very weird and and bold in many respects, I feel like the one thing that the Lynch movie has that it's able to be a lot more goofy and kind of like absurd in a cheeky sort of way, uh, because it's this like giant weird space movie, and you know, like I think. 
you know, like Star Wars, I understand like that's what's able to to make it, I think, appealing is that they, they have like these weird far out worlds, but they're they're funny and silly at the same time. And I think for me going into this, I I, I do kind of wish it had maybe a little bit more of a sense of humor, but I do wonder at the same time if they had put more of that stuff in, it would have been like the Marvel-y like, well, that happened sort of thing. And uh, I, I don't want that at all. So, you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm asking for the wrong things. But uh, at the same time, you know, when you're in a two and a half hour, very heavy, very self-serious film like this, you, you do sometimes have to wonder if like maybe they could have cracked a joke or two, you know, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I wonder, too, if it would have fit. And if it would have felt right, but who's to say, who's to say, I mean, uh, the spit joke was funny. Like I was like the one joke I actually remember in the film. I was like, yeah, it's pretty funny. It's a good spit joke. <laughs> I'm so curious how it's a heck of a thing, how this movie's coming out around the same time as Eternals. Eternals comes out in a couple of weeks and I feel kind of bad for Eternals coming out after this, because these are two movies that are around the same, like they're within two minutes of the same runtime, but <laughs> and then they have like such big like what if we did the bible but in a, a, a kind of like adapting like a very old archaic archetype of a story but putting like big visual flourishes on it i think ultimately dune is way more successful even though it's only like half of one story whereas eternals is trying to do like all this stuff it's trying to cram all of this lore and everything in and yeah i wonder, I wonder how people are going to compare the two films moving yeah. forward i'm, I'm so I, I really am curious like it, it, it's so weird that we got both of these at like the same time yeah i didn't really think about it but i have seen i mean without getting ahead of ourselves i have seen some of the the early reactions to the film and they they seem more negative than your average marvel film uh which is a shame because i actually this was one of the few marvel movies i was looking forward to but i do wonder now you bring it up if it's because dune is coming so shortly on its heels and people are just kind of like well we we have dune like you know like (laughs) what what are you doing around here (laughs) yeah it's weird They're, they're different movies for sure but they have similar like they have these weird similarities like things like how with Eternals, I, I'd say with like with the directors like Chloe Zhao and Denis Villeneuve have been known of like they they're really good at you know they pick really good cinematographers. I know Roger yeah. Deakins did Blade Runner in this movie and Dune. We have Greg Frazier, the guy and, did uh, Rogue One, I believe, right? Uh, that's correct. Yeah. And I I kind of like how he also did um Zero Dark Thirty and uh, oh, yeah. Vice. Yeah, but nice looking movie, I gotta say. <laughs> sure, sure. And um, one thing I do want to mention is that Chloe Zhao, I mean, has mentioned like one of her influences for Eternals was Denis Villeneuve. So you know, that's another factor, I guess, in its cap. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like they're both directors who they're kind of freshmen. You know, they they've been working for like the last good minute. Like I think Villeneuve has made films a little bit longer than Zhao. I think her first film was like 2015. His was like 2010. But they're they're in like that same like new kids on the block sort of style filmmaking. They both very much prioritize big landscapes and filming at different times of day and just not doing the usual shortcuts in terms of how do we make this movie feel alive? They, they really like try to put like their own stamps on it, of course. And I think Zhao is much better at character building, in my opinion, than Denis Villeneuve. I think she's so much better at like exploring, like what's, what's the heart of this person? Like what, what do they bring to the table? And yeah, I, I, that's a little precursor, I think, to like, how is this going to compare to Eternals? Because they're, they're movies where like, I, it's almost like if you took Dune, and you took Eternals and you put them together, you have like the perfect movie almost because they kind of like are like opposites in some ways. But anyway, are we ready to play a little game? 
the rot guess the rotten tomatoes score yeah i guess so yeah yeah have have you seen the rotten tomato score for dune uh, the day we record this i have not recently i don't i don't think i've seen it past like the beginning of last week okay yeah so you got you only got a little bit of a, a peek in through the window so let's see how you do so let's start with the critics score on rotten tomatoes your hint is that 340 reviews have been counted. People are watching Dune and they're they're logging their reviews. They're not waiting around. 340 is quite a lot uh, after just a week, but or a weekend. So, Will, what do you think? Um, I'm gonna go high because it seems like people are liking the film more than not. Um, I'm gonna say I'm between like 89 and uh, 94. So I'm gonna split the difference and say 92 percent. Oh, you're a bit off. It's 84%. Oh, wow. Okay. I makes was surprised sense. I mean, too. Makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I would have guessed around the same as you. I, I was, because when I opened the page up, I was expecting something in the high 80s. So 84 was a little bit of like, oh, oh huh, yeah, that's kind of low. I'm, I'm uh, very yeah, curious I about mean, that. That was, I had kind of the hunch that was like, well, you know, it, it is a bit inaccessible in some respects. So, you know, there's probably like a handful of people, especially if you said like 300 people are talking about, it, you know, sure. There has to be at least a handful of people are like, I don't know about this. Uh, well, I glanced around. It's it's kind of like the highbrow critics, like the New Yorker review is negative. You know, so it, I guess that's where we're finding like some oh, people are just space. How droll. <laughs> Richard, it's <laughs> it's a Richard Brody thing. We know what he does. Uh, yeah. I like um, actually like Richard Brody. Brody. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I can understand why he doesn't like this film. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just sort of uh, yeah. It's it's not a surprise. I guess we'll put it that way. Not not say anything negative about the man. But uh, what about audience score, Will Ash? Audience scores. There are a lot of verified ratings, twenty five hundred plus, because it's on HBO Max. So and people are watching it in theaters. So people are watching this. Uh, but what do you think the audience thinks? Ah, uh, I'm a little off with my uh, critic score, but I'm gonna. Go and say 94% again for audiences. Okay, that's a bit closer. It's a 91%. Okay. All right. Yeah. So 84 critics, 91 audience. So we're seeing audiences skewing a little bit more positive. And I, I, I think that makes sense. I think audiences, like casual moviegoers, tend to see fewer big budget sci-fi films. So I could imagine seeing this as somebody who's like, maybe you haven't seen Blade Runner 2049, maybe you haven't seen 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, you've just seen like yeah. a handful of sci-fi films. Uh, so like seeing this would probably be like, whoa. Yeah, I've seen sand and space, but not like this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like a new hope, but <laughs> yeah. Chalamet. Yeah. Right. So that, that makes sense. I, I, I definitely see why people really like this. And I do like that it's picking up steam to like critics are there's not like a big backlash to this movie. Critics are like, man, I loved this. And they're happy to say they loved it. They're not being like guarded about it. Right. They're not being like, Oh, I, I, I mean, I, I, I liked it, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, it's, you know, like I, like there is stuff about this movie I don't like and like thing, I don't like love the film, but I just, I feel like I want to champion it because I like seeing movies like this do well and succeed. So like, I mean, I, yeah, I'm happy yeah. to support it so I can, I, I can get that mentality for other folks as well. Last, we'll we'll guess the cinema score. What do you think the cinema score for this one is? Cinema score, uh, B plus. Close, A minus. Okay, it's been a while since you got the cinema score head on. It's a tough one though. So. Yeah, I mean, I can't get those 
the, the <laughs> Vegas folks. I don't understand them or want to understand them. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Well, that is Dune, which is out right now in theaters on HBO Max for the next 27 days or however long, limited time, basically. It is 156 minutes long. So if you are going to check it out, definitely plan accordingly. Let's move on to our next film here, a decisively different film compared to Dune, that is for sure. Let's talk about The French Dispatch. Full title of this, I think, is The French Dispatch of the Liberty, Kansas Evening Sun. Uh, if you, you could probably already tell by the title of the movie, oh, is this a Wes Anderson movie? And you'd be right. This is the 10th film by Wes Anderson, as you already mentioned at the top of the show. Yeah, it probably... Is- Mm-hmm. The most Wes Anderson movie we've gotten to date, I have to say. Uh, right? I've heard other people say that, but I don't know. I don't know. I think you think uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox is more Wes Anderson. No, no, actually, no. I wouldn't say that. I'd say it's between Life Aquatic and maybe I'd, I'd have to really think about it. I mean, it, but yeah, I, I think Life Aquatic is probably the most divisive, but I don't know if it's the most. Wes Anderson film. I've heard but. some people say Bottle Rocket is. Again, I've never seen Bottle Rocket's yeah. the one Wes Anderson I have not seen. Actually, yeah, same here. That's the only one of his I haven't seen. Right, yeah. And I I like all of his movies. Like, there's not a single one of his movies where I'm like, that was not worth the time I put into it. Like, that's never happened with me before. But I, that's not to say that I love all of these. There's a couple that I love. There's a bunch that I like. And the last one that I loved was Moonrise Kingdom. And I think a lot of people, though, they'll say the last one they loved was Grand Budapest Hotel. That was a big hit. Yes, I'm with critics a big and fans. fan. Big fan of Grand Budapest. I think it's it's in between like and love for me. I really like it. it but it's not, yeah, it's not a movie See, that I, I look back I f- and I'm like, whoa. Yeah. See, that's how I feel about Moonrise Kingdom. Like, I like Moonrise ah. Kingdom, but it's not like my favorite <laughs> Wes Anderson film. Funny. That's funny how that works. Yeah, yeah. But th- that's the thing. It's like with Wes Anderson... He is such a specific filmmaker. He has such a specific style or series of styles. People know him for certain things. But when you look at it, like his movies tend to be very different. You know what I mean? They employ a lot of the same things, but they do so many different things that I think his movies do sort of reflect a spectrum of taste. So I I talk to people and like my favorite, like some people is like my favorite is Fantastic Mr. Fox. My favorite is Grand Budapest. Mm -hmm. You might meet somebody on the street who's like Darjeeling Limited and you're like, "Uh, okay. And you kind of like walk away from I actually really like... Darjeeling Limited. Um, it's yeah, just a funny I, one to I, pick as your favorite. That's all. Right. As your favorite, that'd be an odd choice. I have to admit. <laughs> yeah. I would actually be genuinely concerned if that's someone's favorite <laughs> pick. Like, they might be not doing great. Your favorite Wes Anderson movie does say a lot about you, I think. I think it says a lot yeah. about your film taste, what you look for in a story. Like, I, right. when I meet people who are like, my favorite is Rushmore, that says a lot to me about, like, yeah, like, I could I could see why Rushmore hit you. You probably watched it at the right time. You probably watched it when you were a college. teenager, college. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd say young teenager, you know, like 19, 18. Yeah, I mean, I saw it. Of. I saw it as a teenager. That is my second favorite Wes Anderson film. My, you told me which one's your favorite, but I forget. My personally is uh, uh, Wes, or not. Well, I don't even know what I was trying to say. My favorite is Royal Tenenbaums. Oh, man. Yeah. Royal Tenenbaums. It, it kind of comes up for me sometimes. I'm like, oh, is Royal Tenenbaums my favorite or is it Moonrise Kingdom? Yeah, it's tough. I, I Love Dogs was his last movie. And that was his return to stop motion animation. He had, yeah. of course, done Fantastic Mr. Fox, which a lot of people really loved. I, I like Fantastic Mr. Fox. Good movie. I know you really like Fantastic Mr. Fox, right? Yes, I love Fantastic Mr. Fox. My third favorite of his. Um, like those three, I just think are just wonderful films. I really, really like Royal Ten of Bombs. I really like Rushmore, and I really like Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I mean, the other ones I have enjoyed to various extents. The only one I'm kind of 
Ifion is Life Aquatic, but I think I, think I just need to rewatch it. I just I don't think I really got it at the time, but um, yeah, I mean, I think I think like you said before, he just has a um, you know a, a style that borrows a lot from other people, but it feels so singular to him, and it's so identifiable, but it also is uh, accessible in a way that I think a lot of other filmmakers who are idiosyncratic in these respect uh, can't really be for some reason or another. But um, yeah, I think he his style has been mimicked a lot, but I don't think anyone's quite got it the right way it, that he's that he has gotten in his films, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, even as the films have gotten more fanciful, I think the core components of what makes the films great have remained in, in the, the, his work. So yeah, I like his stuff a lot. I I really do too. And I think it's tough to pick. Like sometimes you got to look at his movies and if you're like recommending like, okay, you've never seen Wes Anderson. What do you start with? Because some of his movies are more accessible than others. Others are like, you probably should watch a few before you get to this because it might be like trying to drink scotch before you've ever had a beer. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I would not. uh, I would say if if you've never seen a Wes Anderson film, probably don't start with French Dispatch because it is. I could see somebody getting into it, but yeah, I'm not sure like what that would be like. I mean, so this is probably the one that borrows the most from like kind of like absurdist, like Mel Brooksy kind of comedy. So I can I understand where you're coming from, but at the same time, it it is so Wes Anderson-y, like even beyond like Owl of Dogs and Moonrise Kingdom and the other films we mentioned, that I, I feel like it would be a harder sell for someone who is not already subscribed to his brand and his style of filmmaking. They're not already subscribed to his dispatch. Yeah. Okay. There you go. I deserve that silence. Sure. <laughs> Right. So Wes Anderson, we can we can safely say we're fans of his work by and large. And with the French Dispatch and and, and I, by the way, I am excited that this is technically the first time you and I are really getting in on a Wes Anderson film yeah. because when Isle of Dogs came out, we were doing Cinemaholics. It was a thing. Mm-hmm. However, you were not on the show for, for believe, that movie. Yeah, I think that's the first one of our conversations I missed. And I remember being disappointed, but I had forgotten until you reminded me that I was not actually <laughs> in that conversation. Yeah, yeah. I I know you mentioned like what you thought about Isle Dog Isle of Dogs later on. Like you came back on the show and you're like, Hey, I'm back. And then, you know, you were like, Okay, here's what I thought. But I talked about Isle of Dogs with Maverick Hines, former co host of the show, and we both liked it quite a bit. And I I think I've I've soured on the film a little bit in in the waning years. I kind of look back on it and I like that movie, but I definitely like it's funny because I re-listened to the conversation of that one as well. And Maverick and I, we talked a lot about like the backlash and the discourse around this movie. Oh, simpler times in terms of, you know, there, there was um, some negative reaction to how this movie was handling Japanese appropriation and stuff like that. It's it's not our best conversation in terms of like what you get out of it. But in terms of like the movie itself, I think that I I still look back and I'm like, man, it's so cool that that movie exists and that he was able to make it. And it's such an original idea. All that stuff was really, really smart and fun to see and and clever, too. Yeah. I mean, I I think my expectations for it were maybe a little too high. Um, I I put it on the lower end of his filmography just because I think it's it's good. I enjoy it, but just it doesn't scratch the same itch that I think his other better films get. So uh, that's just me, though. I think I think that's where I land, too. I think when I first saw it, I, I was really over the moon about it. Or not over the moon, but I was, I was much more positive on it than I am now. And yeah, I think I think part of that, too, is like the expectations playing a little bit of a game there as well. French Dispatch, I don't think that same thing's going to happen. I, I came out of this one really digging it, and that has not waned at all yet. 
So this movie is a little bit more of an anthology. It's not a total anthology. And so when we, if you don't know, an anthology, we're just saying that it's a bunch of stories in one. It's not, and they're all sort of like disconnected. They're not the same, you know, they don't have the same actors. They're, they're kind of like a, just a group of short stories in one movie. Mm-hmm. That said, it's also threading all of these in an overarching fourth narrative where Bill Murray is the head editor of this it's hard. I don't fully understand this to be totally honest. That's something that I actually kind of like. It's an insert. It's a newspaper based in France, but it's a Kansas new- newspaper. Yes, which but is it's funny a, to me. About I know it's so weird, but I, it, again, yeah, it's it's so quirky. Uh, but it's about this fictional town called Ennui Blase or something to that effect. So literally, like boredom, <laughs> the city. Yeah, and. Uh, really funny title there. We get all the typical Wes Anderson fixings where we explore on we in a, a hyper analog 1975 fashion where there, if, if the, the technology is very pastel. Uh, where we spend a lot of time with characters like in perfectly symmetrical production, these staged sets going about their business and living their lives. And we, that's kind of like where this movie starts and the French dispatch itself, it tracks along Bill Murray's character who he has this team of writers and editors who are putting together what will eventually be the final issue of this. Basically it's the New Yorker, but somewhere in uh france that, that's kind of what they're doing it has like the cartoony stuff it has the personal essays it has the sort of like lifestyle stuff uh, it, it has like a tastes and sounds section that turns into this like very highfalutin you know set piece yeah. story there's a whole testament a whole tribute to a an artist who it, i i i i I want to be careful because I don't want to get into too much detail of like what the actual stories are. So maybe we ease into that a little bit more, but there are different storylines that are parts of this magazine brought to life. So that's where the anthology part kicks in. The cast is huge. We have Bill Murray has already mentioned Elizabeth Moss. She has a very sm- a smaller role in this than I thought she would. Uh, Tilda Swinton, Francis, Francis McDormand, Timothy Chalamet, two movies in one week. So that's funny. Uh, Jeffrey Wright, who I think is one of the film's MVPs. We also have Adrian oh, sure. Brody, oh, uh, Benicio yeah. Del Toro, Leia Seydoux, a bunch of mm-hmm. others. But yeah, <laughs> this movie is so over the top. I really, really dug it. I, this is one of the Wes Anderson movies I love. Like I unbelievably love i can't stop thinking about it i'm so anxious to see it again i think it just made me feel like a writer again i I felt like man when you really write something and you you put your heart into it and like this is when i think of like stories that i write this is this is what i want to imagine right i don't know how accessible this movie is as we've already kind of alluded to (laughs) because it's so specific but again i i really like when things are specific because they can just sort of shine on their own merit. They're, it's not trying to be everything for everybody. And that's something that I like about it. But what do you think, Will? I have no idea what you think of the French Dispatch. You've known for a while. You went into this movie knowing that I really dug it. So I, I right. hope that I did not paint your expectations too high. Well, I mean, you were very warm on the film, but I knew comparatively this was getting kind of a, a more muted response, at least by like Wes Anderson standards. Like I knew it was getting good notices, but like other people were kind of like, I don't know, like, like people who were already kind of on the fence about Wes Anderson were not being swayed by this film. I'll put it that way. 
but yeah, I mean, I, I think because my expectations were more in check, I really appreciate this movie a lot. And I, I liked a lot, maybe not quite on the same level as you because you seem to be very, very high on it. But uh, certainly I think I'm, I'm very receptive, very warm to the film in a way that I find it kind of odd that people are saying it's cold. Um, I, cause I do think it's earnest enthusiasm for, like you said, writing and literature and the New Yorker and, uh, uh, just, um, writing in general, like I said, um, I think is, is very apparent and very sweet. I think people are just a little put off by how comparatively slight it is. Like it's obviously a lot frothier than his other films. But with that said, I think something that Wes Anderson has in his movies that his imitators, to various extents, I, I think don't have is that all of his movies are very goofy and uh, lighthearted in many respects and kind of, you know, over the top in many different ways. But they have an under, underlying melancholy that is apparent either through the characters or the tone in a way that um, I feel like most of his movies or at least better films focus on kind of like old guards of their profession who find themselves uh mostly uneased by the fact that like their their way is going out the window and that the world that they know as they know it is no longer being what they want it to be and they're kind of wrestling with that that sense of uh, inadequacy or whatever you want to have it and i mean i think that's very personal to wes anderson i mean certainly a lot of films i think even by just design like i think the fact that he makes movies the way he does because like he just likes everything to be very symmetrical and this is how he wants the world to be where everything kind of like fits into a neat box and everyone kind of moves in certain ways and all that and uh yeah i mean obviously with uh bill murray's character i think that's the the main key here is that like you know obviously in a very literal way like he is uh moving on like his way of uh writing or approaching literature is uh going out the window and obviously this publication is going under for that reason and uh so like i mean there is that underlying melancholy i think the fact that it is an anthology film prevents it from having uh, a deep thorough line but at the same time i think that is still there in a way that it didn't feel disconnected as some people i think have suggested i do think the the overarching story of it is pretty affecting in a sweet way but i don't think i find myself as uh intensely move as I do compared to like Royal Tenenbaums or Rushmore or Fantastic Mr. Fox. But at the same time, I mean, like uh, a movie of Wes Anderson's that I really, really like, if not like Over the Moon Love is still like one of the best films of the year, just be, especially this year, <laughs> because I mean, like it's just such a, a breath of fresh air to see a Wes Anderson movie like this, where it's so clear and confident style, like maybe even more so than ever. It just feels like Wes Anderson knows exactly what he wants in a movie, like what he wants to frame, how he wants things to look, how things are supposed to be presented in a way that can feel maybe like almost suffocating, like in the sense that like, I kind of wish the messiness of the characters that were seen in Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums would come back to him. Like, I, I feel like everything is maybe almost a little too precise at this point, but at the same time, I don't really want him to change his style. Cause I really enjoy seeing films like this that are so at peace with his vision and so clearly coming from his mind. So uh, despite any criticisms I have, I really did enjoy this a lot, and I was very glad to see, especially in an underwhelming movie year such as this one. I'd say that criticism about the characters is true for some, but not all. I'd say that Benicio del Toro's character, who is this asylum painter, yeah, and, who's uh, he's great, and I like that he like stands out because like the way yeah. that Benicio del Toro approaches his character is so clearly different than how like the Wes Anderson regulars approach it in a way that's really really refreshing. I find. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And also Francis McDormand. I, I think those are the two. And Jeffrey Wright. Those are the yeah, three. I was going to say Jeffrey Wright was the big one. And he's uh, kind of doing a James Baldwin. Yeah. 
Sure. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're sort of doing the James Baldwin thing with him and it, it's really affecting. Um, he gets like a couple of monologues in this that are like profound. He's a person who like remembers everything he's ever written. And like, that's where the precise thing comes in. I was getting Rushmore vibes a little bit when those three characters were kind of in play, not specifically mm-hmm. like a character in Rushmore was like them, but in terms of like how he approaches a character and better balances the, the sort of like precision that you're talking you're saying, about with like a quirky. Yeah. Yeah. If Max actually had his shit together, basically. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Yeah. He would, he would basically be, uh, I don't know who he would be in this, I guess Jeffrey Wright, but, uh, that's the thing is like, you can't really boil down any Wes Anderson character to just, that's why he can reuse characters as often as he does, because he's so good at writing that I think you don't see actors. those other characters. Yeah, uh, yeah, actors. Reuse, thank I, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He can he can reuse other actors, the same actors in so many films. Like we've like a lot of people in this movie have never been in a Wes Anderson film, but uh, many of them have. Bill Murray, obviously, Adrian Brody, and uh, obviously, uh, I'm I'm blanking, but uh, Saoirse Ronan uh, shows up in this. Yeah, Owen Wilson gets a, a fun little, just like a quick thing in here. Jason yeah. Schwartzman uh, gets like a, not a lot in this movie. He's but basically a cameo, so. but he helped yeah, write the yeah. screenplay, so obviously he had a big part in this. He, he were, yeah, the screenplay is fully credited Wes Anderson, but he helped with the story along with uh, Roman Coppola and Hugo Guinness. Hugo Guinness. But yeah, so all that said, I came out of this movie. It's so funny that people look at it and, and are saying that it's cold. I've seen some of that reaction as well. I do agree. It's not like the movie has like one punch. Like it's not the kind of thing where because it's an anthology, it can't. It just has like small like punches over time and i i remember watched i remember coming out of the movie and thinking this is one of those things where it really is going to depend on how much people like the the differing short stories that's what makes it kind of a risky movie because if you don't like enough of them then your mind will wander and it, it will go into too many directions and i would see that it's so weird because I almost say that the middle section, which is that's where Chalamet and McDormand are, that was probably my least favorite, but it was my favorite in terms of music. I think my all around favorite was the Asylum one. And then the one that Uh, had the most interesting like ending was the third one with Jeffrey Wright. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think. For me, the Jeffrey Wright one was my personal favorite, but the Benicio del Toro one is shortly thereafter. Um, yeah, I agree. I think most people have said that the Timothy Chalamet one is probably the weakest of the three or four, if you want to count the Owen Wilson one. Um, but uh, yeah, I think my only the, the main reason I felt the uh, the Timothy Chalamet one was a little bit weaker is for one, it goes on longer, which is deliberate. Like, I mean, there's a big joke about how France McDormand overwrites and like overcorrects herself and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But also, I just feel like. I think that that segment would have been really interesting if Wes Anderson had more to say politically in that. And I felt like he really didn't. I think he was just kind of commenting more on the like absurdity of like these young people being so politically active and using like a literal like chess game, which is a fun set piece. But like I just felt like his political commentary in there wasn't really like striking or like pointed in any particular respect. Uh, Do you disagree with that, though? I, I don't disagree at all. I, I, yeah, I think I think that it's it's the weaker one. But I think where it still pulled me in was ah, the musical cues. I don't think Wes Anderson gets enough like credit, honestly, for how good how good his music tastes are. And I, I mean, I know the, he, the the music itself is by Alexander Desplat, but just in terms of his movies 
on a whole tend to have just really good sounds, like really good tunes kind of filling in the blanks. And this, this was one of my favorites in that respect. I think that it's, it, it, there's a cue in this involving like a jukebox and like the stage opening up. I'm like, ah, you know, like I, that's when I'm feeling this movie's vibe in like every possible way. But compared yeah. to the other ones though, it, it does sort of like fall a little bit short. Although seeing Timothy Chalamet and Francis McDormand kind of do their thing together was I'll, I'll admit like that, that kept me, that kept me interested. That kept my, uh, that kept my mind from wandering off. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, as far as like the soundtrack thing, I have to agree as well, because I just imagine every time like there's a song cue, I just imagine Wes Anderson and his like twee button down suit, just going to his big vinyl collection of like, yeah, uh, yeah. ruffled like eighties vinyls and just being like, nah, this one, uh, I don't too mainstream. And he just picks one. It's just like, perfect and he just puts it on his little like old timey <laughs> vinyl player and he's just like snapping his fingers just like that's the tune <laughs> that's the thing is like just you describing that he's just such an infectious person the things that he finds interesting are so different from what other people find interesting but right. he's just that interesting person that makes you like the thing that he likes i feel well, like yeah, that's what I mean, he tries to do with his movies yeah like i said before like you know, like some filmmakers, like they have a certain tone in their films and then you like see them in real life. And it's just like, oh, that's like totally different. Like someone like like John Waters, just like he makes like these kind of grummy, dingy movies, but he's like very posh and like well put together and all that and speaks eloquently and all that. And then you have mm-hmm. somebody like Wes Anderson or Tim Burton, where you just look at him just like, yeah, you look like you exist in your own movies. <laughs> and like, <laughs> yeah, Wes yeah. Anderson, yeah, I think like the way I see it is just like I think he wants he wants to live in his world. Like, I think he wants the way he makes his movies. I think the Kias wants that to be the way the world is. And he's almost sort of frustrated. just like, why can't things be like this? I want things to be like this. Exactly. It's like, he has this very meticulous dollhouse where he just like, he lives in that world and he's thankfully able to project that onto millions of screens and, uh, you know, get a lot of people to enjoy it as well. But yeah, I mean, it just kind of feels like he is, he sees the world in a very, uh, asymmetrical way, but a very precise and, and delicate sort of way at the same time. And I, I certainly enjoy living in his weird little headspace. Yeah. That, that's a big reason why I think there is a learning curve to his movies, because if you go into one of his movies, not understanding that he's a fantasy writer, like he's writing fantasies, then you might be like, this is so weird. This is not how the world is. You might have an adverse reaction because you're expecting something else. But if you start with something like, I'd I'd say like one of his stop motion ones, it's probably a good one to start with. Rushmore is a good one to start with. You get hints that he's operating in his own, like you said, dollhouse or sandbox, whatever you want to call it. And he's not trying to present the world as it is. I think it's exactly what you said. He's trying to present the world as he wishes it was. And it's easy, at least for me, to want to be in that world. And because we only get a movie from him every so often, it's it's like I get to go on a new vacation to a new place that is like this other place that I really like because it's, it's so hard to describe. It's like there's a new exhibit at the Wes Anderson Amusement Park. It's probably like an old-timey carnival. And uh, Yeah, more you know, like I'm, a yeah. museum exhibit or something, just kind of just like, oh, what is this artist doing now? Oh, okay, that's, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> that's fitting uh, considering Del Toro is a... Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly, movie. yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I think we can't say enough about how sharp the writing is in this movie. I mean, it's just the dialogue, the the quips, uh, the precision of the narration. It's much stronger, I think, than in Isle of Dogs. There are quotes I actually remember in this one a little bit more profoundly. And there, yeah, I, I, like for example, like I think the big one for me is like Bill Murray's is like just try to make it seem like you wrote that on purpose. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's such a great line. I, there's lines like that all over the place. You can tell, like me, I was an active participant in this movie. I was laughing, you know, uh, after the screening the publicist was like what do you think i was like you sat like right next to me you yeah. know what i thought of this movie <laughs> i couldn't it'd be stop funny laughing. though if you were just like yeah it was okay i guess <laughs> yeah then yeah, yeah it could have been could have been funnier <laughs> but yeah but uh, French dispatch. yeah good movie right well i mean to your point about the writing i think it like this film especially it like the writing had to be so meticulously combed over because i'd be the, the the key you know takeaway because it's such a film about writers like if the writing wasn't up to snuff then like what are we doing here uh for sure, but for yeah sure. i think for me my big thing is i made this joke already on letterbox but uh i think i like to think wes anderson's approach to this movie is just like what if a new yorker cartoon was funny <laughs> like that's like <laughs> my takeaway and i i think he succeeded i think it's a very fun you know clearly so indebted to new yorker but like you said also clearly loving and respecting of other famous authors and writers from you know either uh wes anderson's past or just in literature in general and yeah it's just i can see why people are um you know down as far as like it's not as mostly gratifying i think as its other films just because it's not really trying to be but i, I don't think it's cold in any respect i think it's very lovingly put together i, I don't think wes anderson ever remotely even half-asses a film like he clearly puts everything he has into making everything exactly right and maybe that uh prissiness can be a little too much at times like i said i kind of missed the, the messiness of his uh earlier films it's just in terms of like having characters who were a little bit uh, more unlikable or a little bit more hard to decipher. But um, yeah, I think he he's just really on top of his game as far as like making the movies he wants to make and knowing his style and knowing how to get his style down and playing with styles and tones and aspect ratios and animation versus live action. And just it's, yeah, you just get a wallop of good stuff in here. And I, and I, yeah, I yeah. find it hard if you're a Wes Anderson f- fan to walk away disappointed, at least fully. A bit of a warning this is not for kids. <laughs> there is, there is, uh, and, and parts of it for sure would be fine for kids, but uh, a lot of it actually. But there are a couple of scenes uh, involved. One of them involving Leia Sadu that, if you are younger than like fifteen, <laughs> probably uh, I don't know. I don't know how, how parents do. I, I was watching I R-rated movies when I was like ten or twelve. So like, I, what? I know we were, but I want to be sensitive. Like not all kids do that. So I I don't know. I I have a, a nephew around that age, and I would not want him to watch this movie. Unfortunately, sure. I mean, I, if you have young young kids, I mean, I think Fantastic Mr. Fox in general is just a good intro. If you just like, if you want sure. to know, like, if you're if you have no familiarity with Wes Anderson, just like, where do I begin? I think Royal Tenenbaums and like you said, Rushmore are great as starting points. But also I think if you're younger and just want something more accessible or something that, you know, you can watch with the whole family, uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox is a great starting point. Yeah. And then you can move into Moonrise Kingdom. I think that one's, that one's a good one too. Yeah. For, yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's a good for you know, one too. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so that's it. I, I don't, I don't want to leave French dispatch without getting into one of the most important things about the movie, I thought, which is that, so I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking to myself, all right, do I, do I love this movie because it's set 
primarily in a time that I'm very fond of and it's about things that I'm very fond of? Or is it because it's just sort of like, let, let me put it this way. I, I want to make sure I say this without giving anything away. Is the reason I've had issues with Wes Anderson films in the past because they've been too long with these characters? Like, is is the reason that Fantastic Mr. Fox doesn't do it for me as much? Is it because it's just like the same characters over one movie? And do I like French Dispatch more because they're short stories? So, like, does it work better for me with Wes Anderson when it's just sort of a little bit of each thing? instead of like overstaying its welcome. Does that make sense? Because I like Wes Anderson a lot, but I think a thing that I've noticed in all of his movies for me has been at some point, I always feel like I've, I've had enough. Like I've, I've eaten, it's a delicious meal, but I've gotten too much. Whereas sure. with French Dispatch, there's such a variety. They're, they're like self-contained stories that I just go from one to one and I'd never felt overwhelmed, if that makes sense. But it seems to me like other people are feeling overwhelmed. So I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm somewhere in between in that I, I get what you're saying. I think in some respects, I agree. But at the same time, I think because it's so overloaded with like characters and stories and all that, I, I think I was a little bit more overwhelmed than I was with, say, like Grand Budapest Hotel. But um, at the same time, I mean, that's not a negative. I think it, it it knows when to get in and get out. Like as far as like it doesn't overstay its welcome as far as being like 100 something minutes. And, you know, by the end of it, I was really taken by and I would glad I watched like another 10 or 20 minutes of it. But um, yeah, for me, I guess the the film, I, I guess this is the easiest for me to compare it to is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which uh, the Coen brothers did for Netflix a few years back. Oh, yeah. Uh, back, um, yeah, because just like for me, like I don't think The Ballad of Buster Scruggs is like a top 10 Coen brothers film or maybe at least not a top five Coen brothers film. But it, I really, really like it a lot because it just has everything I want in a Coen Brothers film in one film. And if I just like want to like see like the essence of Coen Brothers greatness in one film, uh, I would just watch that film, you know, just because I think it's accessible and obviously, you know, it's segmented so I can break it off and chew it in different little segments. But um, I don't know if I'm as hot on French Dispatch, but I think I like it for the same reasons because – you know, because it's an anthology film, you just get like everything I you want from a Wes Anderson film. Maybe uh, if it had a little bit more stop motion, I would be happier. But, you know, that's not here nor there. There is some stop motion here throughout. There's but, 2D uh, animation, which I right. was thrilled by. Oh, yeah. So lovely. Right. Uh, I, I love that wrestler character, by the way, without giving away too much. That, that joke <laughs> got me really, really well. <laughs> yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's just basically everything you want in a Wes Anderson movie. I mean, maybe not every everything, but like a lot of the stuff you want from a Wes Anderson movie. And uh, like I said, I think if you're a hardcore fan, you're not going to walk away disappointed because it's just it's just a lot of Wes Anderson in a little package. And uh, yeah, it's that's good enough for me. True enough. True enough. Yeah, I think we agree more than we disagree. I just think I have stronger. Uh, I have a stronger of the same feelings almost. And uh, it sounds like yeah. you share similar uh, criticisms as well. So, yeah, we're not too far off. It sounds like I think you just got more of like an emotional response. from. Whereas it's like I was just like, yeah. that was delightful. That was really fun. And I, I don't think I've been like thinking about it as much. But yeah, I just I I really enjoyed the experience of my time watching and I would gladly watch it again. Same here. Let's play our game. French Dispatch, guess the Rotten Tomatoes score. So, Will Ashen, your job is to guess the Rotten Tomatoes score. There have only been 165 reviews counted, half that of Dune. Uh, but, of course, it doesn't hit wide release until later this week, so we won't even be able to do Cinema Score because there isn't one yet. But we can do the tomato meter. 
the day we record this as it is right now, although it's been pretty steady. Uh, did you ever see the critic score, though, before this? Um, no, I don't think so. Actually, I might have glanced at once. OK. Well, what's I know your guess? What do you think? I know it's a bit low, but not like super low. Like, I, I know it's below 80 percent. Um, but I think it's like I'm going to guess like 76 percent. 74. Okay, 74. Very close. Yeah, within two points. That's within the margin of error. So 74% on Rotten Tomatoes at 165 reviews. Hey, look, one of those reviews reviews is from me, and I said it was positive. Uh, It was the same thing with Dune, too, but I mean, there were so many reviews counted for that. It barely had any impact. But what about the audience score? This would be, if I was doing this, I would. I would struggle because I never know what audiences are going to think of us Anderson movies. That always surprises me. But yeah. we have fifty, we only have fifty plus verified ratings, so we have to. So yeah, I'll let you do the math on that because there's a lot to consider here, isn't there? I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I I did remember when I first saw Moonrise Kingdom, I was kind of just like, I mean, I like this a good bit, but I don't know how other people are going to feel. And I remember like the overwhelming consensus was like way more positive than I was, and I was just like, well, <laughs> uh, not ex- what I expected. But um, for this one. Like I said, I, it's not like it's an acquired taste. I just think like the fans of Wes Anderson will like it a lot. But I think if people are kind of fed up with Wes Anderson or if you're you're kind of getting tired of his, his style, I, I think, you know, I, some people aren't going to be quite as uh, receptive to it. So I'm going to say 68%. It is 80%. It's a little bit right. higher. And I think it's there because it's in limited release. I think a lot of the people who are coming out to see this oh, are liking the what New they're York, seeing, right? LA crowd, yeah, I got you. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's what I almost said that too. I was like, whoa, I shouldn't I shouldn't be helping. I can't give you hints. I have to be partial yeah. and objective. But I have a feeling it's going to to your point. Like I think you're right. I think once this hits wide release and more people are gonna watch it, particularly people in Kansas, I think they're gonna watch it and be like, the heck is this? And be kind of yeah. low on it. Who knows though? I, I hope that's not the case. I would love for this to be a, a resounding hit. Do you remember though what Isle of Dogs was, Rotten Tomato score wise? Kind of um, fascinating. Like right now or at the time? Right now. Right now. Which is pretty similar to what it was at the time. Is it like 82%? Much higher. It's 90%. Oh, 90%, 87% audience score. So See, I would I would probably flip uh French's patch and Isle of Dogs their their scores if I were well, if I were me. That's the thing. It's like, well, can we really I mean, it, it really does come down to people <sighs> it really is just capturing like people who had like a positive reaction. I think with Isle of Dogs, it's not, I don't think the average rating is probably that high. I don't think a lot of people came out of Isle of Dogs being like, that was amazing. But enough people were like, that was cool. Like I would be positive on it. Whereas the French dispatch, I think some people were being like, I'm sick of Wes Anderson. I'm sick of you. You know, like that kind of thing. Sure. But I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we didn't really even talk about how like the like Jock Tati influence of his films are kind of becoming more and more apparent. I don't know. I don't remember what exactly the response was at the time. He's been living films, in France, right? I, I have to assume so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that, that sounds yeah. like what's something Wes Anderson's <laughs> doing. <laughs> yeah. I don't know this for sure, but it sounds correct. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, would, yeah. I didn't even bat an eye. I just like, I'm that, that sounds a hundred percent correct. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And that's why he, you know, he has another film that's already uh, in the works too. Yeah. Um, it's it's uh, gonna, filming. Yeah, it's filming right now in Shinshona in Spain. So I think that's uh, that supposed could be to be dicey compared to you know how he's appropriated uh, other countries, but we'll see. 
for sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I've heard that this movie, I think it's, he, it's a little easier with European countries, but yeah, especially yeah, that's fair. That's Spaniards. Fair. But, um, I've heard that this movie, like if you ever played the game Monument Valley or you're aware of the like art direction, it's like a diorama kind of game. That yeah. is apparently what this is supposed to be. So who knows how it will turn out? I hope it's going to be good. I think it's called um, Asteroid City. Okay. I didn't know if it had a title yet. Um, I know it was that recently confirmed. Yeah. yeah. I know he's got some new. I think Tilt Swin's like the lead of it. And I, I, I know obviously like Bill Murray is involved, but. Uh, I believe it's going to be the the introduction to Margot Robbie and uh, Tom Hanks being in a Wes Anderson oh, film. Oh, that would be fantastic. So love, I'm definitely I'd excited to see those two. Yeah. Yeah, I hope that's the case. But all right. That is The French Dispatch. It is in limited release right now. You can check it out in theaters. We're going wide later this week through Searchlight Pictures. It's kind of weird to think that this is that Wes Anderson is under the Disney umbrella for this but yeah what are you gonna do the movie is just 103 minutes long pretty quick runtime and it, it's a low-ish budget 25 million it's like on the low side of mid-size but i don't know about the box office but that's fine wes anderson is box office proof like they're people just keep um, making movies for him it doesn't really matter at this point maybe down the road I, it might, but yeah i think this one's going to underperform slightly because well for one i think it, it feels like it's been coming out for like two years not the film's fault mm. because of the pandemic, but also it just seems like Disney at this point, like they really don't care about their film, like filmmaker driven films. Like obviously Ridley Scott's uh, last duel tanked. And I, I feel like they might put a little bit more firepower behind French dispatch, but it also kind of feels like they're just like throwing it out in the middle of, or at the end of October, um, you know, just kind of willy nilly without much care. Uh, consideration. Well, I don't know. Cause I think there's two things to consider. First of all, this is the time of year where, putting out this is going to be counter programming you know this is going to be for a crowd it's not you know they they don't really want to see the big budget blockbuster stuff they might want to see something a little bit more adult like this so that's that's fair enough it's the it's the right season for it people want to watch prestige films at the moment because it's the fall but yeah i'll say real quick the other thing is that Wes Anderson typically doesn't release films around this time of year. He likes to release films way in earlier the in the year, yeah. uh, summer, spring, sometimes like right after award season, specifically because he doesn't want to compete with other award season films. And he's like, if my movie is really good. It's going to be celebrated and rewarded no matter when I put it out. Like mm-hmm. he's, I think he said that a few times. He did that with Grand Budapest Hotel. I Love Dogs yeah. was like a March movie. Yeah. So I think it's kind of interesting that French Dispatch, I think originally was going to be something like that, but then because of Cannes and, and how the pandemic affected it, it's coming out now. Yeah, I just feel like if Disney was more confident in it, they would just give this like a Thanksgiving Day week and release, either in New York and LA or wide. I just feel like that would have been the play. And putting it at the end of October just kind of feels a bit hash. Ah, I disagree there because I think that this isn't this is the kind of movie where you don't want this coming out when kids are out of school because this is this is a movie that adults need to get a sitter for because they can't take their kids to see it. They know kids won't like it. So if you release it around Thanksgiving, like parent, like who would watch it? Because like, well, we got kids. Like, how are we gonna, you know, like I can't get a sitter on Black Friday. <laughs> you know sure. what I mean? I, I think mean, that's the calculation. Yeah, because I think aren't they releasing Enchanto on Thanksgiving? That seems like it's the- called Encanto. Sorry, Canto. Sorry, uh, I I know that's like their their big Thanksgiving Day play, yeah. which makes a lot more sense. It's like their Moana release for this year. It looks pretty cool. I'm excited to see it. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, looks alright. That's Fred, that's French Dispatch, though. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see how it performs uh, as the as the weeks go by. 
We have time for one last review here and we don't have a ton of time. So we, we might not be able to do like a full on, like super long review for this one, but that's probably all right. I don't think there's a ton to say, but there is some stuff we should get into with Ron's gone wrong. Oh no. I know. I was, I was <laughs> You're scared <devastated>. going into <laughs> the movie. I was like, what happened? I hope he's all right. Yeah. Um, Ron's gone wrong is a computer animated family film. And this is the first film from Locksmith Animation. Locksmith was started in 2014 by Sarah Smith and uh, somebody else. I forget who else. Sarah Smith co-directs this film with Octavio E. Rodriguez. If you recognize the name, that's because Sarah Smith uh, was a co-director of Arthur uh, Christmas. Yeah, which I didn't realize until after the film. But I was like, oh, man, that makes a lot of sense. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I love that movie. Locksmith, Locksmith Animation has gone through a lot of issues because... So the, the the short history of it is that they were supposed to do a bunch of films with Paramount that fell through. Then they were going to be doing stuff with 20th Century Fox, but then Disney bought Fox. Blue Sky Studios went away. All of this stuff kind of like resulted in Ron's Gone Wrong coming out kind of unceremoniously by Disney's sort of offshoot of like Fox, but not really, which is 20th Century Studios, even though 20th Century Studios isn't an animation it's not blue sky right it's not known for animation that's probably why you probably didn't even hear about this movie it's a very odd time to release an animated movie because it's october kids are in school as we were kind of just discussing earlier and you do kind of get the sense that they're probably burying this because they don't want it to compete with their marvel stuff they don't have any big things coming out right now um, except like eternals is coming out but that's a more adult film compared to some other marvel stuff right and and they have Encanto, which we just talked about too, coming out around Thanksgiving. So it's this whole thing, I think, where Disney was sort of like, we have this animated movie, we have to release it in theaters. It makes me kind of sad because I don't dislike this film. I think this is actually a pretty decent film. But the fact that I saw this in theaters, but I didn't see Luca or Soul in, in theaters. These two Pixar movies that, for me, were two of the better Pixar films we've gotten in a while. And... The fact that like that was sent straight to Disney Plus, like not even with premiere access, but like this movie, because of some con contracts and some obligations, it does make its way to theaters. It makes me really mad. <laughs> like I'm I feel so like I really missed out on something for legal reasons that have nothing to do with the actual movies. So that kind of bugs me a lot. But I also feel for this movie because it's not bad. It really isn't. It's about a, a kid who lives in it's like the near future. And this kid kind of like has this like humble background. His dad is voiced by Ed Helms. The kid himself is voiced by Jack Dylan Grazer. His grandmother is voiced by Olivia Coleman. And the whole neighborhood, the, the whole school has these things called bee bots or bubble bots, which are like, it's the future instead of cell phones, instead of tablets and stuff like that. What if you just had like a little buddy, a robot, like followed you around and did all that stuff for you, like your own like little personal robot assistant. And yeah, I, I think that's, that's kind of a cool idea. I don't think that's, necessarily what the future will bring but it was one of the first times i've seen like a, an implementation of like technology of like what could happen next that i was like oh yeah that kind of makes sense like did, what, did you think that was uh smart uh i don't know if it was smart it was i guess semi-interesting uh but yeah yeah okay fair enough i sure. i thought that yeah at <laughs> least it's interesting. I, I, yeah i mean i thought it was i mean i sorry i didn't mean to be so dismissive yeah i i, I thought it was you know it was all right no, I hear, I hear. Um, but that's that's basically the setup. And so this kid, uh, I think his name is Barney. 
he wants a bebot because all the other kids have one. It's like, I can imagine that's probably what it's like in school right now. If you're like the one kid without like a cell phone, you know, or at least like a smartphone, it's like, that can be very alienating. Cause like, that's, if all the kids are like connecting with this piece of technology, that's how people are making friends and doing all this stuff that could be really hard as a kid. Cause you're like, how do I connect with people otherwise? So finally his dad relents and gets him a bebop but it ends up being like a broken one that fell off the truck. And that's how we get introduced to Ron, who doesn't play by the rules. Ron is, uh, he's a bit of a bad bot in, uh, in every sense. He, he he never uploaded to this network that guides his programming. So he's yeah. like a call, total blank slate. Call J.J. Abrams because we got a bad robot. <laughs> how long have you been waiting to say that? Uh, just now, it came right to my noggin. <laughs> Nice, nice. Yeah, he's like all the other robots, like they have skins, they look like other characters, there's even like some Disney tie in stuff that they do since they can. And what we get though with Ron is like he's naked, he's just a robot. He like wears like a little wool cap that uh, they got from the grandma character. And I, I think like my big thing with this movie, it's not long or anything, like it's actually pretty short, but it is structured very strangely where it feels like five episodes of like a kid's show. Does that make sense? Like I was watching this. I was like, this uh, like series of like 20 minutes is an episode of a show. It has a beginning, middle end, and it's very specific. It's not really structured like a movie three act structure. It has like two climaxes. Yeah. I mean, to get to, I guess my biggest complaint about the film, I felt the structuring of the story was very rigid. Like, it just kind of felt like we had to go through these beats in a way that felt uh, rather perfunctory. It's just like, all right, here is the premise, and here is our main character, and here mm-hmm. is what he wants, and here is why he can't have it, and here is how he gets it anyway, and here is the conflict, and here is how he deals with that conflict. And it's just like, I mean, obviously, like, this is what storytelling is, but it just didn't really, like, flow in a way that felt very natural to me. It just kind of felt like very like screenwriting one-on-one to me like this yeah, is how it's film rudimentary. supposed to play out yeah rudimentary yeah I, I i totally agree with that i think that that's it's a big it, it's a bigger issue in the beginning of the film but i think what i'm saying too is that it's like the first episode of this show of a movie is all right the premise like you said and then it culminates with he gets the b-bot but then something kind of awkward happens. The next episode is like, oh, the Bebot is not what he expected. And it like surprises him. It culminates with him kind of like coming around on the Bebot. The third episode is him training the Bebot to be a better friend. The fourth episode is them getting lost in the woods. The fifth episode is like the actual climate. It's, it's like all this stuff. It, it, it's sort of, it's separated out a bit. And I thought it was, it was hard to watch by the end. Cause I felt like I'd gone through so many emotional arcs and it's not even that the message is bad. Like the message is interesting. It's, it's just trying to say something as simple as, Hey, you know, connect with people better, you know, like try to uh, be in the moment, be present. And the way you treat your friends is important. It's kind of doing the free guy thing again, where it's like, you know, artificial intelligence has rights too, like that kind of thing. Yeah, a troubling message to be sure, but um, I know, like, what is with uh, Hollywood screenwriters? Uh, maybe it's because algorithms are controlling our life. Who knows? Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think, I mean, the joke I made to you is just like the moral of the story is that sometimes the tech conglomerate can accidentally do a good thing, <laughs> which is just an odd stuff. takeaway. Yeah, which I think is an odd takeaway for a film like this, but. Yeah, I mean, I think literally the tech uh, CEO, by the way, is named Mark, yeah. and it's just oh man, yeah. oh oh boy. <laughs> yeah, I I like that. Like you see, you know, like the the main the actual bad guy of the film, and like his like 
turtleneck sweater and his glasses and his uh, combed hair and just like, hmm, I wonder who this is supposed to be. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty uh, subtle. Yeah. Hmm. But it's you like, know, it's so funny because here? <laughs> it's, it's so funny how it's like putting your sympathies, but it's supposed to be with the like sort of young millennial, you know, tech like startup dude in sweatpants, which is just kind of funny considering current events right now. But yeah. 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 I don't know. I mean, what it did do? weirdly feel like in a good, in good ways and bad ways, it felt like a, a anime film that we would have gotten in like 2007 or something like that. Yep. Yeah. At least. I mean, I, I could see this being more of like 2011, 2012, but yeah, cause I got record Ralph vibes from this. Got a lot of big hero six vibes from this and even more recently i was really thinking about um what was that movie that came out that was uh about uh ah never mind it's right i mean it'll come to me in a minute it kind of reminded me and this is like a big pool but uh did you ever see the movie robot and frank no okay that was with frank langella and he, i like, remember the poster for that becomes, movie he begrudgingly like becomes friends with a robot and like, you know, like he even learns that like a robot can be his friend and all that. And I was just like, this kind of feels like robot and Frank Jr. in a weird way. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I could kind of see Pretty good movie, that. though. I like that. Yeah, it's weird because like this movie is not like terrible at anything. I thought the animation was fine. I thought the character design was OK. The only thing about the human design that bothered, bothered me were the ears. Like they're like way too big and it's like very yeah. distracting. It but weirdly... You can, yeah, it looked like the characters were like meant to be stop motion, but then they designed them for CG. Kind of like that weird, like flush away Arthur Christmas thing going on there. Well, the co-director, Jean-Philippe Vigny, has worked on not just Pixar stuff. He was a story artist for a few Pixar films like Inside Out and Good Dinosaur and Cars okay. 3. But Sarah Smith, or sorry, Jean-Philippe Vigne, or Vigne, he uh, also worked, did a lot of Ardman animation. He worked. He was a director. He was uh, an artist and, and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And I could tell like the Ardman inspiration because there, there were parts of this movie that felt a little bit more like there were layers to the setting. And it made me think Mitchell's versus machines. That's what I was thinking of earlier. That I was going to say, Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was, I was thinking about that too. Yeah. Just like a lot of robot movies yeah. this year. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, in terms of, in terms of like the, the setting of this, I thought, you know, even though Mitchell's versus Mitchell's versus machines, Spider-Man of the spider Verse, those are the two Sony animation movies that had like really, really cool, like built-in computer animated worlds. But there've been other ones like over the moon and wish dragon and, a lot of it being like direct to Netflix stuff, really, that those I know you you had a fondness for them of like the zaniness and the absurd and like the way they worked. But I thought they were way too smooth, like they didn't have any texture to them. I actually thought for this movie ones? had real texture. Uh, Wish Dragon was the main one uh, I was thinking of. I wasn't crazy about Wish Dragon, but I did. Are you, are you talking about like the Willoughby's? I remember liking that one a little bit more than you. No, I, I, I what I was saying specifically, I remember with Wish Dragon, you thought that like the animation, not not the movie itself. Oh, I just I just like that it was kind of goofier than we kind of get from right. like, uh, you know, like like even like a studio like Pixar. Like it feels like we it, it was willing to be more cartoony and kind of Looney Tunesy, and uh, I didn't get that sense of from this movie. I get that sense from Turning Red, the next Pixar film. That's going to be a little bit more, or like Looney Tunesy. Did you ever did you see that teaser for Turning Red? I have not. I mean, I'm sure okay. before Eternals or something, I'll see it. Okay. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know if, uh, if it's playing in uh, any any theaters at the moment in terms of trailers. But yeah, anyway, Ron's gone wrong. I, I don't have too much else to say about it. I, I think that it's, it's perfectly fine. Like, do, do you recommend I, this? Like, do you think kids should yeah. be lining up? I mean, we've been joking and kind of goofing, but like, I found this to be kind of surprisingly affecting. <laughs> sure. Uh, I, 
I think it's like like I said, I think it's too rigid in its storytelling and too like by the books as far as like kind of barring other animation houses playbooks to like really stand on its own and be memorable or distinct in any particularly relevant way. But I I went in with like extremely low expectations, not because I heard it was bad or anything, just like I just didn't know what this movie was. I hadn't seen any trailers. I just saw the poster and I was just like, whatever. Like, I feel weird being in a kid's film, but John wants to talk about it. Let's see what this movie is. And, you know, like the beginning is just kind of like whatever. It's your kind of like bland setup for a movie like this. But, you know, I I, I do think that they get the actual sweetness of uh, Ron and uh, what's his name, Barney pretty well down and i think what it actually has the chance for ron to go uh wrong in the right way is that it has some really funny beats uh there's one in particular about um without giving too much away about ron trying to make friends for barney oh, it's, it's uh in my a favorite practical part of the movie. Yeah. way which is really funny and a really inspired uh bit of comedy that i think if the movie was like that throughout i think the middle segments where i was most endeared to the film it was like most probably like would have worn out yeah. though but if they had been that same yeah. like level yeah, exactly. If it had more like stuff like that throughout, I think it would have been like this is like a whatever, like seven out of ten type film. Uh, I think as it is, I think it's like a really solid, fun, worth recommending, like six out of ten type film, like decent, like good in its values, even if like some of the commentary is maybe a bit unsettling. But, uh, you know, it's just like well done and nice. It just doesn't really do anything unique or special with what it's doing. And I yeah. felt like it could have done more and just chose not to for whatever reason. I lean a bit positive on it too, but just because I, I really like, I really like Ron, <laughs> like Barney's whatever, but like there were so many times like the way like Ron, like Galifianakis just does a really good job. I think with the voice, like it, the delivery is really funny. I think with some other voice actors, it probably wouldn't have worked quite as well, but even just the way that like Ron says, no problem. Absolute. Like there's just something kind of like quirky to his delivery and it, it made like repeated jokes still still kind of work even though they were the same joke again yeah and yeah yeah he's he's just a cute robot i think it, it, it look it is film school 101 it's like oh my gosh the it's the robot that's like it's fun because it's a little bit different like okay we know what that is but mm-hmm. at least it is doing it effectively at least in that regard yeah i mean affecting i think is the right word like it it, it hits all the expected buttons uh you know pun intended because it's a robot but uh, you know, it works. I mean, it's sweet. It's it's very accessible. I think audiences can like it. Um, you know, it's it's very cute and innocent in its values. But yeah, I just I just don't think it does enough on its own to really stand out compared to other films. But at the same time, like I I, I haven't really been keen on any animated films this year for the most part, and I felt like this was no worse uh, than some of the other films that I've heard way higher praise for. Nonsense. So, Nonsense. Uh, that's just me, though. I would say the two the two. There are three animated films this year that I think this I mean, is a terrific Luca. year for animation. I thought Luca was good. But, I would say uh, Luca. Luca's probably my favorite among them. Mitchell's versus Machines and CryptoZoo, though, like those those three. Oh, CryptoZoo, yeah, sure. I I I was thinking like with family animation, but that's a good okay, example. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. But I know I know Mitchell's versus Machines. You were not as hot on, but I still I maintain that movie is terrific and easily one of my favorites of the year. And so I, I think it's a superior version of this one. But that's not to say they're in that much competition. Uh, they're very different movies yeah i mean my hottest take and i'll save it for the end of the episode is i think this is pretty much on par with mitchell's and the versus machine I, I cannot understand like I, I i'm baffled but you know what that's that's what's great about you lash and you always you keep me guessing you always keep me always surprise me in some way uh last thing i'm going to say about ron's gone wrong though 
I I legitimately like while I was watching this, I was like, oh my gosh, the way that Galifianakis is doing Ron, it reminds me of the way that you do some of like the voices on like some of the classic Cinemaholics bits. Like there were times like I almost felt like I heard your voice through Ron a little bit. Like, oh really? I didn't think yeah, about it's that. true. It's true. Okay. Uh, I think it's because I've I've edited those episodes so many times that like I don't know, maybe it's a psychosis yeah. thing. But you mean like where it kind of like play into the rhythm of the beat like you know like kind of like just read the lines as like to be expected like that kind of thing i don't know i don't know yeah but yeah yeah basically um ron's gone wrong and if ron's gone yeah. wrong i don't want to be right there you honestly go. but all good right baby are we ready gag to... in this uh i, I that's Which all gag? i'll say good baby gag oh yes very, very good, high quality good baby. i've been cracking up about that baby gag <laughs> such a good baby gag <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you were telling me like you came out of the movie and you're like, man, what a good baby cat. <laughs> that got me. I got to laugh. Uh, let's play our game. Ron's gone wrong on Rotten Tomatoes. And wow. So we, we, we did this for Dune and French Dispatch. And it's been like in diminishing order, right? Because Dune had like 340 critics logged it on Rotten Tomatoes. And French Dispatch, which hasn't hit wide, to be fair, had like 160-something. Ron's Gone Wrong only has 73 reviews on here. One of them's mine. Um, so you get a little bit of a hint there. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I, I came to bat for this movie. I, I gave it like just barely passed into fresh for me. Like very, okay. It's like right on the line. And I was like, you know what? I want to I want to give this thing to fresh because I, I had a fresh time. Yeah, I think it's a fresh. I would give it a fresh. Um. What do you think, though, for the critic score? Out of 73 reviews, it could go either way, right? That's not a lot. Like, one uh, negative review, one positive review, make, it pushes it up a few points. Uh, I'm going to repeat my score for French Dispatch and say 78%. Uh, even closer than last, okay. 79%. Oh, oh, so right. close, Lash. Like, if you had done it maybe yesterday, who knows? It might have been right on. Yeah. But, yeah. I just, I, I mean, I figured, like, People aren't like loving this movie. I'm not hearing a lot of buzz for it, but like, I it seems like it's kind of hard to walk away from this being like, oh, that sucked. Like, it's just like, yeah, it's it's charming. It's, at worst, I feel like you just find it kind of mediocre. But sure. you know, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm kind of glancing at it now. Yeah, I'm seeing like two out of four here. La Times wasn't nice to it. Uh, Kevin Lee, who is a critic I really like, and he did the awards watch uh, review. He really disliked it, you know, and really. So, yeah, yeah. And it, but, I hey, guess what are you we find do? like Ron annoying or something, but like I, I, I find it hard to like hate this movie. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. New York Times though, fresh, fresh rating. So anything can happen in this in this this little world of ours. Uh, but okay, what about audience score? Two hundred and fifty plus verified ratings. That was more than French Dispatch. Uh, what, what do you think the audiences are are leaving this one score wise? Um, I think audiences are going to be more favorable than critics, but not overwhelmingly so. So I'm going to say 82%. Eric, you're a bit off. 95%. Really? They're, they're loving it. Wow. I think it's the expectation thing. Honestly, I think people are not expecting much from this. They're coming out and seeing it anyway, because they're like, yeah, you know, nothing else to do. And they're, they're coming out yeah, and watching mean, this movie and they're like, hey, this is better than I expected. I mean, if you have like young, young kids and you want to take them to a movie, like you're not going to take them to Dune. So it makes well, sense. Good, I guess. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean you could. It's PG-13 or whatever, but 
Like I, I, mean, I don't movies, think, movies, my yeah. parents took me to, they would have taken me to Lawrence of Arabia if it had come out when I was alive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. Can we go see Ron's gone wrong? No, I hope you went to the bathroom, <laughs> um, but yeah, 95%, pretty high. Uh, what about cinema score? Oh, oh, I don't know. B plus a, that's a, the highest well, cinema score we've gotten in a while. Hasn't it? Those Vegas folks just, just love robots, I guess. Yeah, they're like, Ron, Ron's gone right, right into yeah. my heart. Yeah. Uh, this thing, though, oh boy, I know that Locksmith Animation is going to be making a few new films, uh, I think with Warner Brothers next. Uh, so they're not going to keep this up with 20th Century. A, a big reason why I think things kind of have been low key in terms of the, the film's marketing. I mean, but did this do well? Because that's what I was about was to like, say. Yeah, I was going to say not doing great. Uh, $17.4 million since it opened, which for an animated movie, uh, even with the pandemic, it doesn't have a ton of competition, right? Cause like, I, I think it's competition is mainly Netflix. It's like, if you're going to watch like a kid's yeah. movie well, with kids, you're probably watching stuff on there is a pandemic. Like the, the COVID ah, like kids, true. Yeah, parents probably just and don't the time of year. Kids. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's the pandemic, but it's also the time of year. It's the fact that and it's Halloween season. Who's going to the movies? I mean, again, we were we were weird kids. We probably went to the movies year round. I think I did, but like when I was at the age that I would have wanted to see Ron's Gone Wrong. But most kids aren't like that. Most kids are like, can, I just want to be on TikTok right now. I don't, yeah. I don't need to go see this robot movie. I mean, I don't think this is anywhere near as good as Iron Giant. But kind of reminds me of the release rollout for Iron Giant, where they're just kind of like, I don't know, when do we put this out? And they just kind of like dumped in the fall and like without a lot of fanfare notice and audiences are just like, what, what is this? It's like a Disney movie. It's like, no, it's like a, a, it's a okay. masterpiece. Oh, <laughs> yeah. all right. <laughs> yeah. The, well, like Iron Giant. Absolutely. Yes. It's a masterpiece. Yeah. It's just <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, this is like arguably one of the best animated films of the past like 25 years. Uh, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> That's cool. I guess <laughs> you, you know, it's October, right? Actually, I don't remember when Iron Giant was supposed to have come out, but uh, yeah, fair point there. All right. Well, that's Ron's Gone Wrong. Hey, quick movie, 106 minutes long. We're on the same time as French Dispatch. So we, we had we had some movie. I mean, that is a little bit long, actually, for an animated movie. Usually they're around an hour and a half. This, this, this is stretching up a little bit more into yeah. like an hour 40. But yeah, that's not bad. The movie could have calmed down a bit. Like it was like, and here's something about surveillance. And it's just like, this is a bit heavy for for a kid's film let's just <laughs> yeah let's turn it they, back a bit maybe they really push I, like that cyberbullying thing too it's like oh gosh yeah that's very 2015 I, mean, I don't know if i if i admire it more for the fact that they're they're like actually like condemning surveillance or if they're like the fact they're bringing up it all is it's kind of weird but i don't know that's that's a whole other discussion and it's one that I feel like we could have about other films probably in more detail <laughs> compared to this one. This is sure. just, it's so paper thin. It's like, you know, we would just be talking about other stuff if we yeah. tried to get into that tangent. But that is Ron's Gone Wrong. You can watch it in theaters now. And that's it for our show. We are, we are going to be gone in just a second. Next week, we're going to be, I, I think the plan, we, in, this could change. Uh, we're hoping to talk about Last Night in Soho. Probably well, as that's a bonus. Given, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, I was thinking least, of like, yeah. It might come out before the main show. We we don't know yet. Uh, So we have some uh, things going on this weekend. I'm going to be out of town. All this stuff's going to be going on. But we are going to be talking about Last Night in Soho. That'll be coming. Also want to talk about passing. Maybe Antlers? I don't know how Antlers Uh, might happen. But I think uh, you saw it. So you'll be talking about it at some point. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, if 
people are really dying to hear what we think about paranormal activity, colon, whatever. Uh, <laughs> the subtitle is, I don't even know. But if it's you know big enough hit that people want to hear our thoughts, I mean, we talked about it more than I expected. So maybe if, if there's enough interest for a review, I mean, I'll see it, but... I don't know. It, a bunch of okay. stuff is coming out, though. It's called Paran- Paranormal Activity Next of Kin. That's sure. And it's supposed to reboot the series. That's of the course. Idea. Yeah. Why not? We're done with what we had before. Make it a TikTok. Um, I mean, the thing I, I, I looked it up uh, after we talked about it and you're just kind of jamming. But yeah. I, I didn't know it was produced by Jason Blum. And I didn't know that Christopher Landon wrote it. And that's oh, kind of he? promising. Oh, yeah. well, now I want to see it. <laughs> Does that settle it? I don't know. I, I mean, the director know. is someone named William Eubank, who uh, I don't think I've seen. I, I know he did that movie uh, Underwater yeah. with uh, Kristen Stewart. But I didn't see that. I mean, one to the, be fair, uh, yeah. uh, well, Underwater I did see. I think we co- Did we not talk about that on the show? I, don't, I think I was uh, out for that because oh, that was around Sundance time. Oh, actually, I think, yeah, you're right. Because that was January. Um yeah, that was like one of the last films I saw at theaters before the pandemic yeah. started. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I I think Christopher Landon's been involved with uh, at least a few of the outside of the marked ones. I think he's like written a number of. So I guess he's coming back to the, the franchise. Whatever. That's a whole other discussion. It's cool to see. Yeah, I hope we can have a Christopher Landon discussion again, considering I think this podcast has we, we've shouted this guy out with Happy Death Day and Freaky yeah, and, you I'm know, it, yeah. Here we go. I feel like I feel like we're kind of obligated to talk about it now, but who knows? All right. Well, there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, that is our show for this week. We'll see you all next time from the Internet California. I'm John Negroni. And for the Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. See you.